have to pass the bill so that you can uh, find out what is in it. What? If you like your doctor, you will be able to keep your doctor. What difference at this point does it make? If you're looking to make sense out of what's going on in the world today, then you've come to the right place. Welcome to Southern Sense Talk Radio with your host, Annie, the Radio Chicky Bellis, and featuring Curtis C.S. Bennett and the most interesting guests that you'll find anywhere on Internet radio. And you can join the show and let your voice be heard by dialing 917-889-3675. So sit back, relax, and remember, Southern Sense is Common Sense. Headlines, breaking news. It's another hurricane. Oh, no, wait a minute. It's an earthquake. Oh, no, it's another riot going on. Oh, the world is falling apart. Every day, another shocking headline makes you wonder, what will tomorrow bring? That's why those who know what's coming are using today to prepare. I'm talking about getting your family some high-quality emergency food from My Patriot Supply. My Patriot Supply is the nation's leading preparedness company. They've been in business going on 14 years now, and they've served millions of American families. Now, they want to help you. By giving you $50 off their popular four-week emergency food kit, you'll get four weeks of food per person with meals designed to give you more than 2,000 calories a day. Oh, by the way, this food stays fresh for up to 25 years in proper storage. So it will be there when you need it. Other food goes bad fast. So don't wait. Go to preparewithsouthernsense.com and claim your four-week emergency food kit. You'll save 50 cents per 50 cents. No, not 50 cents. $50 per kit if you act now. Now, you can go to preparewithsouthernsense.com, or if you're listening to the show on my website, just go to the top left-hand corner, click on prepare. Go to Southern Sense, put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. Don't wait. Do it today. 
All right, and welcome back to another adventure here on Southern Sense. You're listening live on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, YouTube, Facebook, Global Enlightenment Radio, and half a dozen other places I have no idea. Just go to the name of the show, put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. I'm your hostess with the most, just the radio chickadee, Annie, along with my patient and oh-so-understanding co-host, Curtis C.S. Bennett. Good afternoon, Curtis. How are you today? I'm doing much better than I was last weekend. I had a case of uh, food poisoning, so I was down. Oh, no. Oh, yeah, last weekend, and I didn't start feeling really good till um, I think, Tuesday. So got to be careful what you eat out there. (laughs) Uh, that's, That's for sure. That is for damn sure. But uh, we've got ourselves a really rocking show today, uh, a lot uh, to talk about, a bunch of great guests. Uh, we're starting off together from the Epic Times, not Mark Tapscott this week, no, not this week, uh, Ken Silva. Uh, he covers issues uh, including cybercrime uh, and offshore finance and things like that, security issues. Uh, with him will be Michael Doherty, our old friend who wrote the book, The Devil Inside the Beltway, the shocking expose of the U.S. government's surveillance and overreach into cybersecurity, medicine, and small business. Now, he wrote this book back in 23, uh, 2013 about events that started back in 2008. And believe it or not, all these years later, things are coming to a head. Uh, this has been going on an ongoing battle between Michael Doherty and our government, and it looks like he's starting to come out ahead. So we're going to be talking about a great article that Ken Silver wrote on him in the Epic Times with the both authors. <coughs> Excuse me. Ah, where did that come from? And then we're going to have um, Dr. Calvin Beesner. He is the president of the Cornwall Cornwall Alliance, and he's going to be talking to us about this upcoming thing going on with climate change and how it's affecting us as Christians. Uh, Then we have a U.S. candidate for House out of uh, Oregon 6th District, which is a brand new district. The census created this new district uh, for this election, and Angela Plowhead is running for that seat. She's one of several. Uh, Then we're going to have Dr. Josh Umber. He is the founder of Atlas MD. And he's going to be talking to you about, us about the future of telemedicine and what government has to do with that. And then we're going to end the show with our Heritage uh, Foundation segment uh, to close this off for the weekend and wishing everyone a happy Mother's Day on top of that. Sarah Parshall Perry. Uh, she's a senior legal fellow at the Heritage Foundation's um, Edwin Neese III Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. And considering everything that's going on in the news, uh, dealing with uh, the Supreme Court, Roe v. Wade, uh, Title IX, I mean, we could have her on here for hours. Matter of fact, each and every one of these guests, we can spend a lot of time. But we're limited in time and limited in space, so we have a packed show, a really, really packed show here, Curtis. Yeah, we'll just make the most of it. Yeah. Well, we will. We will. And for those that were wondering where we were last week, outside of Curtis having food poisoning, uh, I was in <laughs> Nashville, Tennessee, and FAIR.org, um, 
oh god i always forget what it stands for just go to fair.org uh they deal with immigration and exposing the illegal immigration and what is happening to our nation i'm telling you that seminar it was awesome absolutely awesome we had uh department of homeland security former uh, head uh mark morgan uh i mean I can go down the list of people that were there, and we will be getting them on the show. I, I spoke to each and every one of these individuals uh, personally, and yes, they will be coming on. So it's a matter of me just getting to sit down, have five minutes to think and breathe uh, to start booking these excellent people. So I think we're going to take a couple of segments, uh, a couple of days, a couple of weeks, days, whatever, a couple of Fridays in a row, and work on immigration. Uh, we've got the primaries going on, yes, but what happens with our immigration will affect our future elections, and that I can guarantee you on that one. So a lot to talk about and a lot to look forward to. Yeah, I'm looking okay. forward to hearing, hearing about what you, you know, what you um, learned last Friday. Well, I haven't taken the folder out of the backseat of my car yet. <laughs> Because once I got home, it's like all a heck broke loose, and I've just been going nonstop ever since then. But anyway, uh, those that listen to our show know that we start off each and every show with a dedication to a fallen hero. And today's dedication is going to go to a gentleman that just recently passed away on August 23rd of this year at the age of 77. Kenneth E. Stump, he's a Medal of Honor recipient. He died in Toma, Wisconsin on Saturday. Uh, he also was, received the Medal of Honor, the Legion of Merit, three bronze stars, and a Purple Heart. And this was written by Emily Langer that appeared in the Washington Post. And let me pull up his dedication here, and here we go. Kenneth E. Stump was working the late shift at a Wisconsin printing factory in 1965, the year he turned 21, and the year he hoped that maybe, just maybe, he might be drafted to play professional baseball. When he wasn't at the factory, Stump played for a minor league team in Menosha that a scout had been eyeing for some time. Stump was heading to bed after work. He recalled years later to the Hawaii reporter that he half-jokingly told his mother to wake him if any draft letters came in the mail. Not long after he had fallen asleep, his mother roused him. He had received a draft letter, not from a major league baseball team, but rather from the Selective Service. He had been drafted into the Army. Stemp volunteered to go to Vietnam where his service would coincide with a massive buildup of U.S. troops and the height of fighting in the war. He received the Medal of Honor, the nation's highest military declaration for his actions seven months into his first tour, when he rescued three wounded American soldiers and under unremitting fire, led a successful assault on enemy bunkers in Quang Ne province, stamped returned for a second tour of duty in Vietnam, was wounded, and then went back for a third, 
serving in the Army until his retirement in 1994 at the rank of Sergeant Major. Stemp died April 23rd at his home in Tomo, Wisconsin. He was 77 and had pancreatic cancer, according to his family. It was patriotism, Stump once told the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, explaining why he volunteered for service in Vietnam. At that time, I was gung-ho. I couldn't wait to see my first action. When it happened, my whole mouth dried up and my rifle jammed on me. He was 22, a squad leader with the rank of specialist. When the head of his platoon sent him on a search-and-destroy mission near Duck Fo on April 25, 1967, danger was inevitable. He told his men so he put himself in the first and the most exposed position in their formation. No one objected, read an account of the mission published in the Soldier of Fortune magazine. At roughly midday, Stempf left his squad in the relative safety of a trench when he went to retrieve a field radio. Gunfire swiftly broke out, sending him back. Three of his six men, he discovered, had moved beyond the trench and had been hit in the legs. Gravely wounded, they were stranded. Reinforcements arrived, and with them, even greater enemy fire. In time, everyone except Stemp had been struck by grenade shrapnel. Stempy, look out, someone shouted to him. There's a grenade between your legs. Stemp looked down, according to the Soldier of Fortune account. There was indeed a grenade between his legs. He calmly picked it up, tossed it back at the enemy, and then resumed firing his M-16. Despite the ongoing gunfire, Stemp set off to rescue the three wounded men from his squad. The first had broken a leg and could not move. Grab me around the neck and don't let go, Stemp told him. Before carrying the man back to the trench, he then returned for the second man, pulling him almost all the way to safety before collapsing from exhaustion. Still, he went back for the third man and pulled him back to the trench. His Medal of Honor citation reads, For conspicuous gallantry and intrepidity in action at the risk of his life above and beyond the call of duty, Staff Sergeant Stemp distinguished himself while serving as a squad leader in the 3rd Platoon Company C in a search-and-destroy mission. As Staff Sergeant Stemp's company approached a, a village, it encountered a North Vietnamese rifle company occupying a well-fortified bunker complex. During the initial contact, three men from his squad fell wounded in front of a hostile machine gun emplacement. The enemy's heavy, heavy volume of fire prevented the unit from moving to the aid of the injured man. But Staff Sergeant Stemp left his secure position in a deep trench and ran through the barrage of oncoming rounds to dash forward while the enemy turned automatic weapons and machine guns upon him, yet he managed to rescue the remaining three wounded squad members. He then organized his squad 
and led an assault against several enemy bunkers from which continuously heavy fire was being received. He and his squad successfully eliminated two of the bunker positions, but one to the front of the advancing platoon remained a serious threat. Arming himself with extra hand grenades, Staff Sergeant Stemp ran over open ground through a volley of fire directed at him by a determined enemy toward the machine gun position. As he reached the bunker, he threw a hand grenade through the aperture. It was immediately returned by the occupants, forcing Staff Sergeant Stemp to take cover. Undaunted, he pulled the pins on two more grenades, held them for a few seconds after activation, then hurled them into the position, this time successfully destroying the emplacement. With the elimination of this key position, his unit was able to assault and overrun the enemy. Staff Sergeant Stemp's relentless spirit of aggressiveness, intrepidity, and ultimate concern for the lives of his men are in the highest traditions of the military service and reflect a great credit upon himself and the U.S. Army. On September, 16, September 19, 1968, President Lyndon B. Johnson honored Stemp with the Medal of Honor in a White House ceremony for his actions on that day. He was born on September 28, 1944, and drafted in 1965 where he served in the Army for 29 years. When asked about his actions that day, Stemp replies, I have always said, I didn't do anything above and beyond the call of duty. What I did was my duty. I had to do that. It was a responsibility that I had to my men. He survived by three children and numerous grandchildren. There are now only 65 Medal of Honor recipients alive today. Today's show is dedicated to Master Sergeant Stemp. It's also dedicated to all the brave men and women out there that serve in our military. From the birth of this nation and through today and into our hopeful future. We also dedicate it to all the brave men and women that serve as first responders, be they law enforcement, firefighters, or emergency services. We dedicate to this, um, this song by my friend, Todd Allen Herndon. My name is America. May God bless each and every one.
just gave it to me. They believe in the virtues I stand for. I respect for humanity. Now I'm challenged by tyrants. Stitcher, Spreaker, YouTube, Facebook, all the heck with it. Just go to the name of the show, put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. And for those that uh, are only able to get the audio, if you now go to my webpage, Southern Sense, just remember to put a dash in the middle, you can actually see the video player embedded on my page. Finally figured out how to do that last night. Yay! (laughs) So you don't have to go to Facebook. You don't have to go to YouTube if you don't want to go on there. But you can go straight to my page and see my smiling face and see Curtis. (laughs) <laughs> so, finally did All that right. big step, big step. <laughs> now I can figure out how to do the rest of it. <laughs> we got oh, ourselves yes, rocking and rolling. Oh man! Like I said, we got ourselves a great lineup today, and uh, we're waiting for our first guest to uh, to call in, which I got a confirmation just a few minutes before airtime, which is always a good thing to have happen. Uh, that they will be calling in, and they have the numbers. So it's our old friend Michael Doherty. Uh, we've had him on many times over the years, uh, ever since he wrote the book, The Devil Inside the Beltway. Uh, also, we're going to have from the Epic Times, not my friend Mark Tapscott. He's going to be on next week. Um, but we're going to have, actually, instead, the author of the uh, article about Michael Darty, Ken Silva, that is up in the Epic Times. Um, here's something that's we're going to talk about SCOTUS and everything else uh, because we've got other people coming on that. We're going to discuss that, Curtis. But here, the White House announced their new press t- secretary to take o- over after Jen Psaki. 
Oh, my God, the world's worst possible pick. When is this administration going to pick someone for their qualities, not because of their sexual orientation or their ethnic uh, background or or their racial background? No, 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 no. Just, Just pick someone that is qualified to do the job they need to do, but that they pick these these things that they, they fit into certain niches to pamper to uh, less than 10% of our society, maybe 1% of our society. Like, who really gives a flying F in the rain? Yeah, they're, they they're trying to make a statement. One, they got this one, Corinne Jean, uh, Jean-Pierre, dans le français, Jean-Pierre. And um, she is, is he the first. Oh, <laughs> yes, she's she's the first black female to serve in this position, and she's the first openly gay. Now they're talking about Jen Psaki having a possible conflict of interest because she's going from the White House to MSNBC, the communist station. But Corinne Jean Pierre's girlfriend, wife, or whatever you want to call it. Uh, also works for MSNBC. You don't see a conflict of interest, uh, do you? You know, a little bedroom pillow talk and wondering how Jen Psaki got her foot in the door at MSNBC. We have no further than to look at the new press secretary. So not only are they insulting the intelligence of the rest of America by taking this pick, Give me someone, I mean, Jen Psaki was really good at looking you straight in the face and lying as sweet as can be. But at least she was a press secretary that she had the credentials to say that she could do the job. What does this woman have? The fact that she's black, female, and openly gay. Hey, and, that oh, covers, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. That, that, that covers just about all of the demographic. Yeah. Cultural oh, demographics no. and sexual. Oh, no. Three and one. It, 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 it's gone amok. Amok, amok, amok. We've got the first of several guests calling in. And you know what? I didn't look to see whose phone number was which one. My bad. <laughs> so let me bring the individual in. And this is either going to be Ken or Michael, because I did not write the phone number down. Hey, it's Michael. Michael. Can you hear me okay? It's yeah, Michael. Michael. Can you hear Michael? I can hear you, Michael. I can hear you loud and clear. You know what I did? As I'm putting my notes together, I'm thinking to myself, why don't I go into my cell phone and copy down Michael's number so I know which one is calling in at what time? I never did that. Well, you know, my it doesn't. We don't care. It's all. <laughs> it's all live. It's all good. We're not gonna. We're, we're not gonna. We're not gonna punish you for anything like that. Anyway, uh, are you driving? Of course I'm driving. I'm almost to my my one th- my uh, my parking lot, and I didn't think I'd be on with you so fast. <laughs> I was preparing ahead of time, but I just turned on my GPS. So see, it was uh, it's, all the, it's the thrill. <laughs> anyway, well, you you can't get any better than you know live radio or live broadcasting. So no, you can't get any better. But hey, you know. Um, you had a medical uh, testing facility that specified specifically for uh, cancer patients, and you handled right. over seven hundred thousand patients. 
And back in 2008, someone hacked into your system and then tried to tell you that you were breaking the law and tried to blackmail you. Hence, you wrote right. your book, The Devil Inside the Beltway, which came out in, in um, 2013. And I was one of the first people to interview, I'm proud to say. You were. <laughs> Cutting edge. Yes. And you have been battling uh, the government and this company that hacked you, uh, proving your innocence. And you've, your case has taken an interesting new turn. And since I last spoke of you, to you, I saw you uncovered a lot more skullduggery than you have in the book. Well, the book, uh, I would tell you, the book obviously is out nine years ago. And the book story, I mean, you know, I'm so glad I wrote it then because it's all about what, what it's like to go through uh, a, a government investigation and how unfair it is. Uh, and, I, and my whole agenda then was to let people know we have no rights. When you're in criminal, you might have rights. But when you have a civil investigation, you have no rights, and you should know the difference. And they can completely destroy you because you have no rights. They can, and, and they do it through reputation. They do it through lots of ways. And then the book brought out a whistleblower, and who knew that, right? And the book brought, got Daryl Issa's attention, and we had things that you could never plan on. You don't write a book going, oh, I'll show them. I'll bring out a whistleblower, and I'll get Congress's attention. But because of who was doing the dirty deeds, it did get Congress's attention. And then they put me on trial, and they said, uh, and the judge in their courtroom, in their own court that they control, the, the judge said, there's no there there. Uh, LabMD did nothing wrong. And so, of course, they have, they overturn them. Because in these agencies, they have their own courtrooms and their own judges. The commissioners of the agencies appointed by the president get to overturn the judges. So all that process is is putting you through a meat grinder, spending your money, increasing your stress, consuming your life. People out in the world go, oh, you must have done something wrong. And then that eats up years. So you go from 08 to a 10 investigation, to a 13 book, to them suing me, to my being sitting here in, the, in, 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 in trial in 14 and 15, to, to them being overturned by the 11th Circuit, then two years of that. So 2018, it all ends where the FTC gets their hands clapped. But the truth still didn't come out that, and I didn't find out until the whistleblower gave me more information and we had depositions where they finally admitted 11 years after they called initially that, guess what? We didn't take your file with normal software. We didn't take your file with our software. We took your file with software by the, the FBI, and the FBI weaponized us to go do searches for child pornographers. And what's more noble than searching for child pornographers? So they exploited that trust. And they broke into computers of non-child pornographers so they could steal files, make them change the metadata, make them look like they were out in breaches, and then they told them to go and um, and then they called the companies up like me and say, hey, your file's floating out in cyberspace. It's been breached. We can get this fixed. Pay us. And a lot of people paid, but I didn't because I thought they were big liars because they wouldn't tell me anything. Unless I paid mm -hmm. them. They were not helpful. So 
<laughs> all those years it takes, I mean, the big picture is that it takes decades and millions, and I call it the long slog of Justice Mountain, to fight the government because they have so many trash cans and rocks and junk they can throw in your path on the way to justice when they've done something wrong. The government, like everyone else, can make mistakes, but the government never says, oops, sorry. Nope. The government uses nope. its power. So well, Michael, we've, we've got Ken with us now. Ken, welcome to the show. We've got Ken Silver, uh, an author, a reporter on the Epic Times, where my friend Mark Tapscott is our guest every other week. Just to let you know, Ken, I've known Mark Tapscott for a long, long time. And I'm always pleased when I see my other friends up there putting something in the Epic Times, like uh, uh, Jim Simpson, uh, Gregory Wrightstone, Gordon Chang. I can rattle off a whole list of them that I love seeing my my buddies up there in your paper. So welcome aboard. You're jo- you're joining a great crowd. <laughs> oh, I'm honored to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Now, what turned you on into uh, Michael's story? Because for a long time, no one was, was talking about this. I think, uh, Michael, I may have been one of the few people that just kept pursuing it with you. Uh, I haven't done it in the last couple of years, but, you know, there's so many other stories out there, too. But, you know, what yeah. made you be uh, uh, alerted to Michael? I was actually laughing when I heard Michael talking about how this story hasn't been exposed until the last couple of years. And that's, that's 100% correct. Uh, I was working for a tiny trade publication exclusively that lawyers read. It's a subscription service, and I cover these kind of litigation cases with the FTC and different consumer regulators. Um, I saw Law360 had published a story about Michael's uh, uh, litigation with the FTC where they said, you know, the, an administrative or a special master sided with uh, Michael and Lab and MD, the uh, appeals court ordered the FTC to pay him 800000 in in legal costs. You know, it was, it was a little 400-word story basically saying the outcome of, a, of a, the latest order. Um, I, I look at, at the court records, and I actually read the entire judgment, and my jaw just hit the floor. The, the, the judge is talking about how the FTC acted improperly, colluded with a criminal hacker to try to fleece Michael. Um, I wrote this in late 2019 for the tiny trade publication, and Michael and I have been, uh, you know, professional friends ever since then. And now uh, when I got hired by the Epic Times, I, I told his story for a much wider platform, and I'm very happy to do so. Yeah, I think the last time you were on, Michael, was when you, you did win that case back in 2019. But the funny thing is I went into my computer last night, to find the original notes from when you first came on the show, and I have them, believe it or not, in my hand. I printed them out last night. I still have. I keep what, everything. Uh, what was the date? What was the date? What was the date? Oh, I, that's the whole thing. I didn't put the date on there. Uh, okay. <laughs> well, actually, if I well, if I went one, back into, the, well, if no. I if I went back into my computer and looked at the date on the file itself when I saved it, it'll probably tell me. So I'll text you that later because I'm sure it was just well, shortly after it, it, it was just, it, it was it was one of um, I mean I did a big media blitz and then and then that was such a I mean bizarre time in my life. You understand? You go back and during that time, 
you didn't know, oh, I'm going to write a book, and a whistleblower is going to come out, and Daryl Issa is going to do an investigation, and I'm going to testify in front of Congress, and, and then, then the FBI is going to raid the, 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 the criminal, and, then, and then, uh, then the whistleblower is going to get criminal immunity. But then he's going to hire a former U.S. attorney who's going to screw him and screw us and lie in front of the court to protect the Justice Department and herself. And, and it's going to be so unbelievable, everyone gets exhausted. And the rhinos in Congress are going to be upset with ISA for trying to expose this. So, I mean, you expect, you know, you expect uh, Elijah Cummings to not like it uh, or, or Nancy Pelosi or every Democrat. In the, it doesn't make any difference. But you don't expect the Republicans to work against you. And I'm telling you, it has been uh, an education I really uh, did not enjoy receiving. Uh, and it, but what is also fascinating is how the country and the audience has so changed. I mean, I had to be very careful and very visual in my presentations and really go slow and tell story because you didn't want people to get up. You know, you couldn't, you couldn't, and Obama was president. And, and people were like, are, are you, you're not going to insult Obama. Now, everyone's like, oh, yeah, they're corrupt. <laughs> it's sad. Uh, it's very sad. Uh, my job's a lot easier, and we're not done. Because what the big picture, this took, well, we're on year number 14. Wow, and yeah. we're, now, we're now just in court. We're now just in federal court to hold people accountable. And the courts until then have been so unbelievable, so hard to work with. Uh, we had oral argument in the Third Circuit Court in November of last year. Oral argument, folks, usually goes 15 minutes aside. We went two and a half hours. Um, there Whoa. is just enough here for about a 10-year television show of the tricks and, uh, and, and tools that the government has to uh, beat you into submission and to uh, dance around accountability when they act impossibly hard to believe bad. Well, here, Ken, so you need this, people this like what, Ken to do it. Yes, but this is what, you know, when I first uh, delved into Michael's story, I found this horrifying that our government, without the full weight of the law, uses regulations as if it is a law and actually bludgeon people with them and threaten them with uh, criminal penalties for a regulation. This is obscene, and this is the shadow government that is finally being exposed. Ken? Yeah, and I, ha- I, I have to say, yeah, so I have to say that Michael has had a lot of problems and struggles uh, trying to get justice over the last 14 years. Uh, He's talked a lot about Republicans being limp-wristed when it comes to fighting the FTC. So I hate to say it, but I think he's going to even have a more difficult time fighting to shine transparency on the FBI, because there's maybe a handful of Republicans willing to take on the FBI, but that, I mean, the FBI is basically basically the KGB. So if if Republicans are afraid to take on the FTC, I don't see them taking up a fight against uh, the weight of the federal police. No, that's the whole thing. And here's the thing. This is what my lawyers could never quite get to their head, where I I, I just didn't know what planet I came off on. I'm like, you must file the case. You must show the transcripts. You must get the discovery even if you lose, 
to show the loss. If I just get up on a public platform and whine, no one's going to listen. And I'm not about, oh, look at what happened to me. I'm about, look at what this government can get away with. And the only way to get it believable is to file those cases that you know you, you could even lose. And, you know, I won. No one thought I was going to win against the FTC. But I got a judge, Judge Choflat, who was appointed by Gerald Ford, who never, who worked full-time to his 90, who read everything. The things I've learned about the judiciary, some of these judges don't read everything. And they, they leave it to their law clerks who are in their 20s to paraphrase. And in, in so many ways, our judicial system is a game of telephone that we learned in kindergarten where we start with the word toaster and around the room we end up purple. And so you never really know what story gets to a jury's head on the truth. And my story is, A, big in size, and, two, very hard to believe And when it comes out of my mouth because people will think I'm being extreme, I'm being emotional, I have an ax to grind. So it was critically important when the media finally started to report it. And it started to crack in 16 with Business Week and then the New Yorker in 19. Ken's done a very nice lengthy piece a couple weeks ago because someone else has to say it other than me. And that's just normal. You know, and someone has to take the time. But we have, we have a lot of stories like my experiences with at the hands of the government, and we are very short supply of of papers like Epoch Times and writers like Ken. And so it takes um, it it's the it takes 14 years. That that's abominable. Uh, it takes tons of money. Uh, it takes someone like me that just gets laser focused and just puts the results away and just keeps on moving. That's, that is, and I, that's why I call it Justice Mountain, because they put a mountain in front of you to climb, because they know most people will fall off. You look at how Hillary has conducted herself from day one, how the FBI, all of these conduct themselves. Uh, I mean, I used to call it the Eric Holder School of Law, because it's like, yeah, I'm going to break the law, and I'm going to do it blatantly, and I'm going to do it in broad daylight. And what are you going to do about it? Quit your job? Lose your career? Break your bank? Congress isn't going to do anything. I mean, this is why there's such a huge split in the Republican Party, because you think, you think I think Congress is going to rescue me? I mean, look what Congress did when Trump became president. They just, they just left the FBI maul him. They knew it. I mean, and, and this means you. Lindsey Graham, and this means you, Jason Chaffetz, and this means you, John Boehner, and this means you, Trey Gowdy. You know, so it's it's not you can you can list all your AOC, uh, Nancy Pelosi's you want to beat up all day long, but this is a way bigger problem than me, and this is about yeah. the Republican split as well. You're right, and Ken, you're perfectly right about you know uh, the FBI of all agencies. Here, you thought you know it was started with noble ideas. You're going after criminals, actually real criminals, but it's the everyday American that is subject to scrutiny from the FBI, as you have been exposing, uh, and you've got several good pieces out there exposed in the FBI. Uh, I'm I'm waiting for them to raid your house next, honestly, after reading some of your stuff. Uh, You also had really interesting stuff you exposed about the Oklahoma City bombing that no one is aware of, but we suspected at the time. And it rolls into what happened with uh, that attempted kidnapping plot uh, and the FBI's involvement. It's showing up now 
in the January 6th prisoners, uh, we're, we're seeing the misuse of our government agencies to, to go after innocent civilians who's nothing more than just trying to make ends meet or just getting a conservative, true conservative message out there. Uh, sometimes I wait to see an SUV sit in my driveway. <laughs> what have... Are you? Are, can you live without fear in your life with the way you're you're un- unveiling all of this? Oh yeah, I'm not too worried. I mean, they could just have Will Smith slap Chris Rock, and the whole country will get distracted <laughs> from whatever scandal. So, you know, I, there's there's a comedian who made this joke that they said if like George Bush actually did do 9/11, like the next day the public would just it would be in and out of the news cycle. Like the public is so easily distracted, unfortunately. Um, I should mention about you mentioned uh, a lot of the work I've been doing about OKC. And the controversies around that. And I should say that we wouldn't know any of the uh, unanswered questions about OKC if there wasn't a man named Jesse Trenadu, who is very similar in my mind to Mike Doherty. I think they should have a beer sometime and talk about their cases against the government. Um, Pretty much Timothy McVeigh had accomplices with connections to the FBI. Um, They've been covering that up for 27 years. Uh, Trenadu had his brother killed over this, and so he is also a lawyer and a Marine. He's tough, he's smart, and he has the resources to fight back against the FBI. And a special master is uh, investigating allegations that the FBI tampered with one of his witnesses in a Freedom of Information lawsuit against the FBI. Uh, He's suing to get records. Uh, surveillance footage of the Oklahoma City bombing, and this has been under investigation for seven years, under seal, gag orders on all parties, uh, still ongoing. So he's been fighting in court for 20 years, uh, getting knocked around. And so people like Michael and Jesse Trenadu, like the public, really owes them uh, 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 thanks for the work they're doing. They're using their own personal resources to the public's benefit so we could know about all these nefarious activities of our, uh, of our federal law enforcement. It is scary. I really mean it is very, very scary. But you've got to send me, uh, Ken, information on Jesse Trinidad, because then we'll get him on, and we can bring you back and talk about the Oklahoma City bombing, because I think this should be exposed, uh, because there's a group where actually through the FBI they formed this uh, task force, if you want to call it, that goes after patriots. Now, mm-hmm. you would think they would go after things like the Ku Klux Klan, but if you're a Tea Party person or if you're a mom or pop protesting at the school board, they're going after you. Yeah, exactly. I, uh, so I wrote about an undercover FBI operation called Patriot Conspiracy, which entailed three FBI agents pretending to be neo-Nazi bank robbers. Uh, the significance of PatCon is it never resulted in any arrest. Therefore, it was basically the FBI infiltrating extremist movements uh, for spying purposes. It was a giant domestic spying operation. Uh, so, yeah, these things need to be exposed because this has been going on for decades where the FBI infiltrates these groups and incites them to violence. Kevin, so, they, so they can arrest them. Kevin. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Ken, Ken, Michael. Hey, this is yes. CS co-host. <clears throat> I remember a time when even Bobby and John F. Kennedy 
feared the FBI under J. Edgar Hoover, he would have thought Congress would have um, cleaned out house at the FBI since Hoover departure and death. But it seems like we we still operating today under um, a somewhat fear of the FBI and what they may have on us. And I'm talking about congressional members and things. Um, am I way off the base or what? Uh, I, no, I, if, I, if I can, yeah, go ahead. Sure, go ahead, Michael. Yeah, please. Well, I, I was going to say, number one, you have to say the dynamic is what I always call head on a spike. It's the same all the time. It, they can't get to everyone. They can never get to everyone. So they, they create a head on a spike. You don't have to have anything on you. If you're in their way, if you're going to do something to script their agenda, they're going to come after you. They're going to create something. If they had nothing on Donald Trump, they created something. Um, and so that's what people have to understand that they'll do, and that they've infiltrated Congress. They've got these people very intimidated. Schumer has talked about this. There's recordings of Schumer who said, said you know, never, never to take on this this arm of our own government it is it is a brutal power center and it's very confusing i think it's confused donald trump quite a bit and i think he's you know he's 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 been pulled in and sucker punched by it it's hard it's hard to understand that for example they'll probably never arrest they'll never arrest the cyber criminals with me because they weaponize them so they couldn't even get a conviction if they wanted to because they're the co-conspirators so this goes on and on and on and on all over the place, and it's been going on for a long time. And our realization of this is new, but this has been going on for a century at least. So we have to understand that you can't untie this knot quickly. And that is why story of what happened to me or what happened in Oklahoma or what happened anywhere with this, the more stories, the better, because people relate to story. That's why investigative journalism is such a backbone for this country and survival. We have to understand story so we empathize with people and understand it's us that it's happening to. And so, you know, the media has been uh, strangled, throttled, and we're having new, new sort of, you know, sprouts coming up from the ground now uh, so that we can get to the original and true uh, mission of journalism, which is truth to power. So it, it, it's so what, what I can't tell how important of, of uh, you know, Ken's work is, is the most important thing of the day. Right, that's what my a compliment, point, Ken. Ken. <laughs> Thanks for the kind words. I would just add that you talked about Hoover's misdeeds being exposed, you know, after Watergate by the church commission and all that stuff. Um, about five years later, it was revealed in 1980 that the FBI was at it again. They were spying on some uh, political group with ties to Nicaragua. Uh, the, the, they didn't find any criminal wrongdoing, but they were still having informants infiltrate the group anyways. Uh, Congress wanted to – they proposed something called the Undercover Operations Act, which would have given Congress direct oversight of all the use of FBI informants, secret missions – um, the Congress would have been directly appraised of these things, but the FBI director at the time uh, launched a campaign against this, and the bill was, was killed around 82 or 83. So 
Uh, yeah, the FBI still had power even in the wake of later, uh, Watergate and the Church Commission scandals. They are still able to kill Congress's attempt at direct oversight for these secret operations. Uh, the power that they have that we as average Americans don't understand. And we elect these individuals to Congress and the Senate uh, who, as you said, are limp-wristed Republicans. And you included my own senator, Lame Z. Gramnesty. Uh. <laughs> and Michael knows. Michael knows, I told him once before, I literally went nose-to-nose and toe-to-toe with Lindsey Graham. He made the mistake of inviting me to a local fundraiser that was just downtown, less than a couple of miles from my house. Of course, I show up. And uh, we had a conversation, to put it politely, (laughs) until (laughs) they grabbed me by the shoulders and moved me aside. And I thought my husband, God rest his soul, um, was going to deck the aid. And I was like, no, 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 that's all right. That's all right. I had my say. (laughs) Yeah. But we're working on it. I have a sworn declaration quoting a former FBI informant who said that the purpose of PATCON was to infiltrate right-wing groups and incite them to violence. The sworn declaration was accepted by a judge who launched an investigation into it that's still ongoing, as I mentioned. So this is a direct, this is a a smoking gun court document that I've sent to just about every Republican in the House, and nothing has come of it. So they have the evidence. They don't have any excuses not to act other than, you know, I don't know, uh, apathy, or maybe they're, they're compromised themselves. And that's, that's, um, it, I can even say that. survival. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I, survival. I, I, I mean, people don't understand, you know, the founding fathers built Congress to be ineffective and to be really slow and molasses and conflicting. And it's so everyone in an individual level has to pick their spot. If you stand out like Gates or something like that and be a total hellraiser, you get marginalized and really it's psychological warfare look at what they've done to gates with all these assumptive threats and how the media piled down you thought he'd be in jail by now he's not even indicted this is just you know it's the same playbook it's wash rinse repeat move on and when they fail or they're caught lying there here's what shocks the senses of americans they don't bat an eye they just move on. And this is why the story is so important, because we've got to get Americans' heads out of the theater of an American history book into reality of what's going on today. They, this whole government has been built underground, starting with Woodrow Wilson, has been allowed to morph like a gargantuan bunch of Frankensteins, and they're kind of bursting out of the ground now. It's such an extreme, they can't be hidden any longer. What's new is that you know about it. It is not new that they've existed. And it started in the early 20th century. And that's why these stories are so important. And that's why they try to throttle the media. And, you know, it, it, it's a fascinating history, actually. And it, I'm really glad there's instability and, 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 and fighting right now because that means people are getting it and they're putting their foot down. Because usually what they do is when you're, you're divided and conquered by this government, usually, where you're isolated and you're uh, stripped of all your power and your contacts and your career, and everyone else stays afraid and looks the other way, like in Washington. And I think that's starting to come to an end. 
Well, you know, Ken, what Michael has gone through, the toll that is taken on him personally, not only that, the employees that lost their job, the patients that lost a service uh, through his company that could possibly be life-threatening if they don't have it. Lord knows how many of his patients were able to survive this debacle uh, because his services are no longer there. That personal toll was not really understood until we saw what's happening with the January 6th uh, prisoners. I think, it was, and then with you exposing things like that, I, the public is starting to listen, I think, I hope. Yeah. Well, the trouble with Michael's case is it's a little bit abstract. We're talking about, you know, zeros and ones, you know, computer code, uh, 400,000 cancer, cancer patients. Like, how do you even... Uh, conceptualize that. I think Michael gave me a great quote. He said, you know, if I owned a hospital with 400 patients that was uh, hacked by a criminal using FBI tools, this would be the biggest story in the world. But people don't seem to understand the significance of a cancer research center, you know, losing 400 patients because it was destroyed by a hacker. So, yeah, to Michael's point, we need uh, narrative stories that can capture people's imaginations. Uh, unfortunately, most of the the best storytellers are on the left. Unfortunately, you know, since since we started the show, Michael, since two thousand nine, two thousand no two thousand ten, uh, we were following Fast and Furious. That's going to the wayside. We follow stories like this over and over, and all of a sudden they just seem to disappear. But hopefully, well, uh, that's now because, we can... that's because they get exhausted. I mean, that's because our media is about ratings and roadkill, and roadkill gets boring, and they move on to the next roadkill. And that, you know, and, and we have to quit consuming that junk. We, if we quit consuming that junk and realizing how it hurts us. See, we, America doesn't connect how my story is damaging to them. I mean, I'll have people listen for any reason, but I want – I reason I – carry this on is because I want them to understand that this is happening to them, that, that I'm just the head on the spike. They're the people that people want to control. I'm already dead. My company was gone. I already lost it all, which was very freeing in a way, but that's not the story. The story isn't, oh, listen to me. Look at what happened terrible over here. The story is I'm the head on the spike, and you're the crowd they want to scare and control. They, they just pick one head, but the, the audience and who they're going for really is the population. And America has really started having to start to understand the connection there. Yeah, yeah that's exactly absolutely. right. I would say what happened to Michael as far as the dirty legal tactics is the exact same thing that happened to the victims of Jeffrey Epstein. The only difference is that instead of, you know, a teenage girl, Michael Doherty is a full-grown man with legal resources and uh, the – the personality type to actually fight back against the government. Well, that's why we love him. Now, people can find you, Ken, at the Epic Times. There's a link on the show page uh, to the Epic Times. And I'll let you know I get it not only online or have my friend Mac, Mark, Mark Tapscott on every other week, but I get it in my mailbox. Uh, Michael, people can also go to the show page, click on your name, Michael jdoherty.com and go to learn more about you get your book listen to your podcast and then they can hear it straight from the horse's mouth right 
You can hear that part. Yeah, and I've started uh, the Justice Society at thejusticesociety.com, and that's the next vehicle about education and training David to take on Goliath. And really, thejusticesociety.com is the is this decade's thing. Oh, nice. Send me the link, and we'll have you back on and have Ken back on also. All right. You guys are just so great together. And I'm glad the two of you were able to hook up and get the story out there. Yeah, thanks Thank again you. for having me. This was great. Oh, that's fun. And happy Mother's Day to your special mom out there. <laughs> Take oh, care. Yeah. Michael. Thanks. I'll let her know. Thanks Mike- again. Michael J. Doherty at michaeljdoherty.com, as well as Ken Silver at theepictimes.com. We've got our next victim in on the studio here. Let me bring in Dr. Calvin Biesner. Good afternoon, Dr. Calvin. How are you today? Good afternoon, Annie. I'm doing great, and I hope you are too. Thanks so much for having me on. Oh, I am. It is my pleasure. You are the president of the Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation. Tell us about that. What, What is that? Yeah, we're a nonprofit uh, network of just under 70 evangelical Christian scholars, about a third are natural scientists, uh, including some of the world's top climate scientists, by the way. About a third are economists or policy wonks, and about a third are theologians, philosophers, uh, ethicists, and religious leaders. And we work to educate the public and policymakers on biblical earth stewardship, which is not the same thing as environmentalism and economic development for the very poor around the world through free markets, limited government, the rule of law, entrepreneurship, free trade, and the gospel of Jesus Christ, that sinners like me can be reconciled to God uh, by faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, So we put all of these things together, and we're hoping to, as my wife sometimes puts it, we're, we're trying to save the planet from the people who are trying to save the planet. (laughs) <laughs> well, you sound like a, my friend Gregory Wrightstone. Uh, he now has the CO2 Good coalition. friend of mine, too. He, uh, if you ask Gregory about me, he will tell you I was his first. <laughs> first one to interview him. <laughs> it's a running oh, he's joke a great between guy. us. Yes. But, you know, people are starting to become more alert to this climate change scam, uh, the Green New Deal. Mm-hmm. And how it is actually the opposite of what is really in truth going on. And now we have an unusual ally uh, through someone in the New York Times. You wrote an excellent article just recently here in Town Hall. Tell us what you found out. Yeah, well, you, you wouldn't expect for the New York Times company to publish an article that really uh, just – destroys the idea that we need to somehow or other get away from fossil fuels to fight global warming. But last month, New York Times Magazine published an article uh, called This Eminent Scientist Says Climate Alarm and Climate Activists Need to Get Real. It's an interview with uh, Dr. Václav Smil, who is probably the world's greatest expert on energy, where it comes from, how we harness it, what, it's, what it costs, and why it costs what it does. And uh, the reporter, David Marchese, or Marchese perhaps, um, interviewed Smil for this article based on his book, How the World Really Works, the science behind how we get here, got here and where we're going. And over and over again, 
uh, Marchese seems to want to get Smill to agree that climate change is a looming catastrophe and we simply have to act now to avert it by replacing fossil fuel energy with wind, solar, and other so-called renewable sources. But Smill just won't take the bait. Uh, <laughs> he points out in some uh, that CO2 emissions uh, cuts being called for to fight global warming are unrealistic. They don't take into account the vast scale of the energy needed to serve even the basic needs of the world's roughly 8 billion people. And they don't consider what's necessary to produce and distribute all that energy. And then finally, Smeal explains, people have to realize that this problem is unprecedented because of the numbers, billions of everything, and the pressure of acting rapidly as we never acted before. This doesn't make it hopeless, Smeal says, but it makes it excruciatingly more difficult. Marchesa, the, the reporter, tries again and again to get Smeal to go ahead and embrace the notion that somehow we've got to get away from fossil fuels, and over and over again, Smeal just simply refuses. That's shocking to find in anything published by the New York Times. You know, I'm always amazed that we all have to go into this green energy, solar energy, wind. Mm -hmm. uh, but when you're dealing with, and I'm sure you, my church does a lot of missionary work, and I'm sure you do too, you go into these th third world countries or even towns and counties yeah. within the United States that are, are, can be considered third world. They can't afford wind or solar. They can't afford any of that. And how, how do you have someone living in a straw hut or in a slumlord's tenement building convince them that they've got to give up their fossil fuels? No, this, makes is, no this sense. is just insanity. It is. It's, it's total insanity. And, uh, you know, I, I just read a, a heartbreaking uh, report about a situation in uh, one of the sub-Saharan African countries. I've forgotten now which one it was. But there was a, a woman in labor uh, to deliver her baby, and the hospital had no electricity. <laughs> Literally, the hospital had no electricity. And because of that, when the baby was born, they discovered that it had died in utero just a short time before. If the hospital had had electricity, it could have had an ultrasound going. The doctors would have found that the baby's heart was distressed, and they could have done a C-section right away. But for lack of electricity, they couldn't do that. For lack of electricity, they couldn't get that, uh, that newborn into immediate uh, neonatal ICU and perhaps saved its life. Now, this kind of thing happens every day in very poor countries in Africa, Asia, and some parts of Latin America. Um, and, and telling the, the people in these countries that they need to leapfrog over the use of fossil fuels that lifted the West out of extreme poverty into prosperity that, that results in, you know, very, very low infant and child mortality rates, very low uh, maternal mortality rates, and frankly, much longer lifespans. I mean, before the Industrial Revolution, average life expectancy at birth was about 27 or 28 years. 
Today, in developed countries, it's about 80 years. In, uh, in uh, middle countries, middle-income countries, it tends to be about 70 years. This is all because of abundant, affordable, reliable, scalable, massive amounts of energy, especially electricity. And that comes around the world over 80%, almost 85% around the world, and in many places more than that, from fossil fuels. And despite hundreds of billions of dollars poured into subsidizing wind and solar for the last 50 years, wind and solar still produce only about 3% of all the world's electricity, and electricity is only about 30% of all the energy the world uses. Uh, this is just insanity. Well, I'm, I'm thinking back to several years ago, there was a hurricane that hit Puerto Rico pretty hard. And they were supposed mm-hmm. to have a two-tier electrical grid. And if my, I'm, I'm pulling this off the top of my memory. Uh, but for some reason, their green energy side was not hooked up. There was an incompatibility between the switch. And Puerto Rico had no electrical power. This is a U.S. territory. So imagine right. how much worse it is in other third world countries. You know, you had yeah. a whole island decimated because an, an American territory decimated because it just isn't working yet. Not only that, this technology you have for solar requires the use of, of toxic chemicals. And when you lose a solar panel, there's no safe way to get rid of it. You're just putting more poison back into the earth that you're That's claiming right. to be steward of. And then the, don't yeah. let me start on the wind, on the wind uh, tunnels, uh, <laughs> uh, towers that, that kill the birds. But, oh, no, wait a minute. What about the vibrations that are so bad that people nearby end up having psychological problems because it is a constant vibration and it's not good for the human heart or brain. How are you being stewards (laughs) of birds? If that you're doing that to the people, what is it doing to the animals in the local forest? How many of them are going berserk because of this crap? Excuse my language. Yeah, this is is what it is. Yep. But Annie, you are absolutely right. And, and I really believe this is not about climate. It's not about science. It's all about government control over people's lives. And particularly, it's about an anti-human agenda that says there are too many people in the world and we need to reduce the number of people. All of this comes from, ultimately, an anti-Christian, anti-biblical worldview that fails to see that human beings are made in God's image. And so it sees us as basically consumers and polluters, uh, using up the world's resources and poisoning the planet while we're at it. Instead, God made us to be producers and stewards and to reflect him in how we do that so that we get to make more and more out of less and less. We get to enhance life in in this world rather than destroying it. And that's what the Cornwall Alliance is all about. We're about teaching people how a, a, godly, a godly fulfillment of the mandate that God gave to human beings in Genesis 1.28, when having made Adam and Eve in his own image, he blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and everything that moves on the face of the earth. Uh, we're supposed to reflect God in how we do that. 
So we should be working together to enhance the fruitfulness and the beauty and the safety of the earth to the glory of God and the benefit of our neighbors. So that we're really addressing the two great commandments, to love God and to love neighbor. That's, that's what Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation is all about. We have hundreds of articles and a lot of big major studies uh, at our website, cornwallalliance.org. Uh, we publish a, uh, an email newsletter that comes out two or three times a week. Uh, people can sign up for that for free, and every issue of that is educational. We also have a YouTube channel, Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship, pardon me, Stewardship of Creation. And we have a Facebook page, and we have lots of videos at uh, both YouTube and Facebook. And we've also just recently launched a podcast called Created to Rain. Uh, Created to Rain is on Spotify and, and uh, iTunes and various other places like that. And uh, this podcast is just going to be a tremendous educational resource for people who want to understand these things from a biblical perspective based on solid science and really good economics. Yeah, next time someone tells you they need to uh, lower their carbon footprint, go, wait a minute, how does that tree breathe if you lower the carbon footprint? Because they need Absolutely. that CO2. Which uh, Sasquatch in the chat room uh, was kind enough to point out. But, yes, we do know that. And like, like you said, Gregory Wrightstone also has a great app on his CO2 uh, Coalition website that you can download on your phone. The fast, the, what is it, Fast Facts or something like that, uh, that you can have. And at your fingertip, you can know, well, if you cut down CO2 by this much, the Earth's temperature will go down. But if we raise the temperature... We will be fruitful and multiply. There will be more than abundant food to feed the people on this planet without having to reduce the population that the globalists want us to do. You know, the more yeah. they reduce the little guys like you and me, the more the fat cats, the elite resources they have to, yeah. to plunder. So, you know, there's, there's, well, there's, there's so much more. <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah, there's a, there's a there's a really easy way to see that this is not about science and it's not about climate. It's all about redistributing the world's wealth through uh, the the idea of climate change being a disaster that the wealthy world needs to help the uh, poorer world get adjusted to and and mitigate. Otmar Edenhofer, a German economist who was for many years uh, co-chairman of the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, in the lead up to the Cancun Climate Summit back in 2010, he said, we have to get over the idea that this has anything to do with the environment. This is not about climate. This is all about redistributing the world's wealth de facto. Uh, he said, you know, the, the developed countries of the world have uh, essentially expropriated the climate property of the developing countries by using fossil fuels and thus warming the earth. And now they owe money back to these developing countries. That's, uh, I'm, I'm paraphrasing there because I don't have the exact words in front of me. But uh, if you just look up Otmar Edenhofer, uh, and uh, you know, climate change, you'll find that. He's, uh, he's absolutely right, and yet he's from inside the beast. Uh, he's actually with the UN IPCC. So this is not about climate. This is about 
wealth redistribution, and it's about substituting a socialist and globalist government for a capitalist world uh, economic order of free trade by free people living in free countries. Uh, this is, you know, freedom is not going to survive if we all agree to fight global warming together. Freedom will be the first victim. Calvin. And that's, that's, that's the fears. Yeah, go ahead, uh, Curtis. Yeah. Um, do you still think that maybe nuclear energy is still a viable alternative, or are we just, you know, do we throw our hands up with nuclear power since um, there hasn't been a nuclear plant oh. built in decades? Yeah. Uh, oh, my goodness. Nuclear is uh, far and away the best means of generating electricity on a massive scale. Its safety record is better than the safety record of any other uh, energy source for generating electricity. Um, its its uh, impact on the environment is better than any other source. If these people who are uptight about man-made global warming really were serious, they would all be favoring nuclear power because it's the one major energy source that has zero carbon dioxide emissions. Uh, and yet they don't favor it other than James Hansen, amazingly enough. Uh, he says that uh, we should switch to nuclear. But uh, then, unfortunately, the green movement over the last 50 years or so has succeeded in persuading many, many people that somehow or other nuclear is highly dangerous. It's absolutely the opposite. The, the historical data show it's the safest source we have for massive amounts of energy. And frankly, the, the simple fact that uh, uh, so much of the world is now experiencing uh, serious problems in terms of uh, supplies of oil and natural gas and even coal, uh, that I think is going to point more and more places back to nuclear. Uh, we're, we're having a tough time developing it here in the United States, but certainly around other parts of the world, India, China, for example, those two places have roughly a third of the world's population total. Um, India and China are building nuclear plants rapidly. They're also building more and more coal plants and uh, more and more natural gas plants. And people will say, oh, China is just really doing great on renewable, renewable energy. Well, it's building a fair amount, but it's still getting over 80% of its energy from fossil fuels. And it's building coal plants at a rate that will, will totally dwarf anything the United States can do to cut back on, on uh, CO2 emissions from coal plants. But if we reduce our CO2 emission, emissions, where are we going to be able to grow our crops? Because we won't have yeah. enough CO2 for the crops to prosper. The more we have right. there, the more that we can prosper, the more food we can produce, the, the more we can help eliminate or alleviate yeah. starvation. But by the way, folks, and I've said this many, many times, the world was much warmer when Christ walked upon it than it is today. Yeah, that was in what's called the Roman uh, warm period. Um, just in the last roughly 3,000 years, there have been the Minoan warm period, the Roman warm period, the medieval warm period, all three of them at least as warm, probably warmer than the present, and all three of them before there were any SUVs anywhere. 
And <laughs> that certainly has not been carbon dioxide that is the control knob for global temperature. But as you say, CO2 is essential to all plant growth. Uh, you can kind of summarize it this way. For every doubling of CO2 content in the atmosphere, you get an average 35% increase in plant growth efficiency. Plants grow better in wetter and drier soils and in warmer and cooler temperatures. That means they expand their ranges. They go farther north and farther south. They go higher eleva elevations and lower elevations. That means everything that depends on them can expand its range as, as well. So if we care about biodiversity, we want plants to expand their range, which means we want more CO2 in the atmosphere. Plants also then uh, improve their, their fruit to fiber ratio. They make better use of soil nutrients. They, they use less water. So everything is win-win, and the result is more food for everything that eats plants or eats something that does eat plants. And that helps poor people around the world tremendously. You know, wealthy people, yeah, can we survive if there's a doubling of food prices? Yeah. Um, moderate, you know, medium income people, uh, middle, middle income people, can they survive? Yeah. The very poor, if you have a doubling of food prices, we're going to see people go from, from hunger to starvation, millions and millions of them. So adding CO2 to the atmosphere is absolutely the best thing that we can do for uh, all plant life and therefore all life around the world. And frankly, its impact on global average temperature and therefore on uh, extreme weather events, on any kind of climate or weather-related risk to human beings is minuscule. Yeah. Now, a couple of years back, I think it was two years ago, you wrote a little uh, booklet called Social Justice Versus Biblical Justice, How Good Intentions Undermine Justice and Gospel. But sometimes I wonder if there are actual good intentions behind these things we call social justice, especially the recent attack on Title IX, uh, women's sports, mm -hmm. uh, the yeah. advancement of the transgender or whatever you want to call it, flavor of the month, the gender fluidity. I think it's uh, more than just uh, good intentions versus the gospel. I think it's a deliberate attempt to undermine our faith. And if we no longer worship at the altar of God, we then must worship at the altar of the government. Isn't that the original intent? Yeah, I, yeah, I, I think there are many people for whom that is absolutely the case. There are folks out there <clears throat> excuse me, uh, who are committed to Marxism, to communism, who are trying to get the idea of Marxism in, you know, like the camel's nose under the tent, under the false flag of social justice. And so there, no, there are no good intentions there. Uh, but at the same time, Annie, I would say there are an awful lot of people who really don't understand that that's where it's coming from. And they hear social justice and they think, well, of course, I want justice, so therefore I want social justice. What they don't know is that the term was uh, developed during the progressive movement of the late 19th century, and it specifically called for redistribution of wealth forcibly done by the government taking from some people what belongs to them to give to other people what doesn't belong to them in violation of the Eighth Commandment, which does not say you shall not steal unless you are the government, right? 
And so people don't realize this. So they just think, well, social justice means justice for everybody. No, that's not what social justice means. Social justice is the opposite of biblical justice. And yeah, I discussed that at length in my book, uh, social justice versus biblical justice. People can get that, by the way, from the Cornwall Alliance, either by going to our online store where they can buy it, or when they make a donation of literally any size to the Cornwall Alliance and ask for social justice, we'll send them a free copy, and 100% of the donation will be tax deductible. All they have to do is go to cornwallalliance.org, click on the Donate button, and as they fill out the uh, donation form, just fill in, uh, uh, write in social justice in the comments field, and we'll know what to send. We'll send them a free copy of that. Well, just to let you know, when I put the show up there and we get a lot of hits in the archives, I make sure there is a link to my guests, if, they're, if they have one, and it's on the show link so they can click on cornwallalliance.org and go straight to your website so they can get it there. Great. Thank you so much, Annie. That's a, that's a real help to us, and I, I'm sure it will be a real help to many of your listeners. As I say, we're, we're trying to bring a solidly biblical Christian understanding to these things, coupled with really outstanding science and outstanding economics, outstanding political theory that upholds liberty and justice, uh, truth and righteousness, and really puts a priority on making sure that people's, people's freedom and their property and their prosperity are protected and that the poor have the freedom they need to conquer poverty as well. Yeah, well, there has been nonstop attack on uh, our Christian faith as well as our Constitution. And we see a perfect example right now with what is going on at the Supreme Court as they have the link, uh, the link, not the link, the leak of the possible... Oh, oh my goodness! I just had a brain fart. <laughs> the, ruling. the draft, <laughs> the draft. Yeah, the draft, draft uh, ruling. Yeah. yeah. So now we have protests being planned on all days Mother's Day, uh, because Roe v. Wade may be overturned. It looks like it will be, and it will be going back to the states where it, it properly is a state right issue. It's not one of the enumerated powers within the Constitution. Our founding fathers were Christian enough to know the danger of doing something like that. They knew that once that slippery slope went down, we would lose our nation. And this is a God-given nation. But their, their attack on our Christianity, on the rule of law under the Constitution, is incessant and now turning extremely violent. Yeah, it is, uh, particularly where we see the doxing, uh, sending out the addresses of the Supreme Court members. Uh, Interestingly enough, sending out the addresses only of those who appear to be voting for overturning Roe, not sending out the addresses of the other ones. So it's clear what people these these folks want to have feel public pressure. What's tragic about this is that the Supreme Court is supposed to be above politics. Is it always? No, but it's supposed to be. And so those who resort to political pressure tactics to try to force the Supreme Court to change its mind on something like this have shown that they don't understand the difference between politics and law. 
They don't understand the difference between legislation and jurisprudence. And they, that means they don't understand the American Constitution. They are trying to overturn it. Uh, that's exactly, frankly, what Roe versus Wade decision back in 1973 did. It imposed political thinking instead of ruling according to the Constitution. This will return us to constitutional rule in this regard. And it's something that I believe every Christian, every pro-life person should celebrate tremendously. But the work isn't done, as you pointed out. This sends it back to the states. And we're going to have to fight and fight hard. I mean, rhetorically fight, of course, not physical violence. But we're going to have to fight hard to get solid laws passed to protect human life from conception to natural death all along through all of our states. And sadly, what looks like is going to happen is we're going to be a divided country. We used to be divided between free states and slave states. Now we're going to be divided between life states and death states. And may God deliver us from the possibility of civil war over this. But may also God bring to an end the rampant destruction of human life uh, that is fostered by the abortionist uh, movement in America. Well, your website is cornwallalliance.org. It is a great website. You do fantastic work out there. There's so much more to talk with you about, uh, so I definitely do want to have you come back on again in the near future, and may your family enjoy a, a blessed, blessed Mother's Day. And thank you very much. God bless you, Annie. All right. Dr. Calvin Biesner, Ph.D., you will find him at uh, the thecornwallalliance.org. Check it out and uh, get his book. It's a very good book. It's only 50 pages, easy read. So it looks like we've got our possibly next victim in on the line. Let me just double check to make sure and that this is uh, Angela Plowhead. Good afternoon. I'm sorry. I'm not Angela. I'm Pastor Don, Jr. CEO. Good afternoon. How are you doing, man? I'm sorry, I didn't catch your name? Pastor Don, Jr., CEO. Oh, hi. How are you today? And you were calling in for? I'm calling in because I've been on 365 Days of Radio Campaign over the last seven years to reunite people all across the globe who don't know each other via the social media. And how are you doing that? Uh, I've been on over 10,000 of these radio shows, and I've been connecting people since I was uh, bar- I-, I was carried into a radio station when I was three months. I'm 44 now, and I've been around the entertainment industry. So I have a lot of people in my text messaging, on my social media. So I'm plugging everybody in, and God is moving. Yes, he is. Well, I want to thank you for the call. We do have our next guest in on the line, and actually my co-host is starting to bring her in in a few moments. Uh, but thank you for yes, the call, ma'am. and thank you for considering our show. And uh, have glad. a blessed Mother's Day family, too. Take hey, care. Amen. You, too. All right. All right. And it looks like Curtis is trying to bring our guest in. Let me go ahead. And good afternoon, Angela. How are you today? I'm doing great. How are you? Oh, I am doing fine. Uh, you are running for Congress out of um, 
Oregon's 6th District, which is a brand-new district that just got formed because of the recent census. Uh, tell us about that district that you hope to represent. Um, so it's a district that includes five counties. Um, I've actually lived in four of the five counties. The one county that I didn't live in is where I went to graduate school for five years. So these are all communities that I've lived in, you know, done life in, and the, you know, these have been my neighbors and my friends and my coworkers. Um, and it's a district that is pretty evenly split. It's a little more, has a few more registered uh, Democrats than it does Republicans. Um, but it's a district, or here in Oregon anyway, we have about a third of our registered voters that are unaffiliated, which means that they, they don't belong to any party. So they're not independents, they're not Democrats, they're not uh, Republicans. And so we've done some recent polling and what we have learned is that about 70 to 80 percent of them are actually very conservative in their values when it comes to things like family, education, and um, safety of our communities. And so, you know, I feel like we have a really good shot of getting uh, this district uh, and turning it red. Oh, <laughs> I wish you a lot of luck on that. What, what is it that propelled you to decide to run for the seat? And tell us a little bit about your background. Yeah, so I was an intelligence analyst in the Air Force. Um, after I got out of the military, I served, I got my doctorate in clinical psychology and then served in VA for 12 years in different capacity. Um, I also, um, in 2014, opened a private practice and um, grew that and am now a small business owner. I have a few um, practitioners that work with me as well. So, you know, I've also been an advocate for seniors and people with disabilities and veterans issues, um, gun rights issues for a long time. And so when I started to see the areas of communism and totalitarianism that I saw in my intelligence work start to be implemented here in America, some of those same ideologies um, against the American people, I knew it was time to step up and, and do something about it, that I, I wasn't willing to allow our nation to go in those areas when I knew that the reason I was able to rise out of poverty and get educated and serve my nation and my community was because of the freedoms that we have in our Constitution. And, you know, since then, you know, we've seen a lot of stuff happen with our education system. Um, here in Oregon, we have 50% you know, of our third graders that can't read. We have 40 to 50% of our graduating seniors that have to take remedial courses just to take 100-level college classes. You know, we're, we're really facing a crisis, not just mental health-wise, which obviously we are, but, but also in our education system. And so if we want to have leaders of tomorrow in this nation that are going to be able to compete on the national and international stage, then we have to have people that are going to be in there and be willing to fight. Well, you know, I think back historically uh, because Germany was known because they started kindergarten. But that's not necessarily a good thing. Up until a certain point, you know, there, there was no public schools. It was the local community that handled the schools. You know, it was the 1970s, I believe under Nixon, that we formed the, uh, the oh, good Lord, Department am I education. having a bunch of brain farts? Yeah. Thank you very much. Brain farts today. It's the gray hair. It's starting to really work. <laughs> um, but the idea for kindergarten actually started, believe it or not, folks, with Adolf Hitler. His idea was that if you get the child early enough, you can indoctrinate the child through the public school system. And for some reason, we adopted that. 
Now, you're heading to Congress. Would you look to ban or defund the Department of Education? And why? You know, yeah, you know, I don't know that we would actually be able to totally defund it, but I think what we could do is significantly reduce its influence over our kids and over what happens in education. Um, I, I think it would be a good idea to defund it because I think all that stuff needs to be local. We need to have local control over those issues because we know what's going to work for our communities. Um, but what we can do is we can tie federal funding to what should not be taught. We might not be able to say, you need to teach this, you need to teach that, but we can say, you can't teach this stuff, the stuff that's been really harmful to our nation, the stuff that's, you know, against our Constitution, the stuff that is promoting hate for our nation. Um, those things we can definitely tie federal funding to. And so, you know, I, I think there's a lot that can be done, you know, implementing school choice with the, the money following the child. That way every community, um, regardless of, you know, whether it's a poor community or a rich community or, you know, that every child gets to choose and the parents get to choose what educational opportunities are going to work best for their child. So getting education back into the hands of the family where we don't have, you know, these unions dictating what our kids are taught and what kind of schools are going to go to, you know, here in Oregon, I know we've experienced it and I'm sure other, other areas around the nation are experiencing this too, where we have redlining that happens and where, you know, we have affluent neighborhoods that funnel into one neighborhood school, but we have, you know, poor neighborhoods that funnel into a different one. And there's such a disparity between those, what those kids are taught, the, the class sizes. Um, you know, there was one district that we lived in where we had our, our, our child was in a class of 36 and one teacher with no aid, but yet half a mile from us, they had class sizes of one teacher to 24 students. So there's a significant difference there in what the kids can learn. We had all kinds of problems with bullying in that school, and we had to take our kid out and put him in private school, where most schools, most parents can't afford to do that. But every child needs to have good education. Well, we're actually seeing some of these policies, uh, unfortunately, overflow into these private schools. Uh, that's when, mm -hmm. you know, the parents, that dollar, when you pull that child out, does affect that private school. But mm -hmm. over the the decades, because I went to school in the 60s and 70s, we saw the creeping in of certain things that traditionally was things you learned uh, whenever you went and practiced your faith or through your family. They were not mm -hmm. things that were taught by the school. And they started off calling yeah. it head, health education. Uh, and now mm -hmm. we see it creeping in where transgenderism and sex fluidity and pronouns are now the everyday norm of these children. And uh, yeah. following your website, I was horrified to see some of the things that are actually being taught to our children. And there's a mm -hmm. website that has a YouTube videos up there, and these videos are being shown to these children. I'm sorry. Uh, this is not yeah. something my school should be teaching any child. The amaze.org videos, I mean, they're yeah. revolting. Yeah, they're really disturbing. But, yeah. But now very, these children get, they're not developed mentally, sexually. They haven't even gone through puberty, and yet they're being exposed to things such as pornography and, and all this other stuff. And it's okay. It's okay. Really? No, it's not. Not to my child, and 
I was not blessed with children, but when I see my parents in my groups mm-hmm. come to me and like, where can I send my child? Because this is now being taught in the local school. And then I confront the school superintendent. No, it's not supposed to be. Where is that? Prove it. I mean, mm-hmm. we are stuck yeah, in a catch-22. Yeah, it really is. It's happening everywhere, and and they do it. There, it's very insidious, and they try to hide it from parents. Um, you know, there's books that they have in the library, and they're like, well, they don't have to check it out. Why is it there? You know, it. Last time I checked, it was still illegal to show pornography to children. And just because you put it in cartoon form, um, when you have content that is essentially the Kama Sutra, and you're showing that to children, that is illegal, and it. It's hard now to tell who are the groomers, you know, who are the who are these predators that are in our schools, and who are the teachers that are being, you know, told that they need to be teaching this stuff. Um, you know, we've had five educators in our state in the last two months that have been either investigated or charged with sex crimes against children. And you know, this is a really serious issue, and we need to be taking it seriously. Um, you know. I understand that there are children that have, you know, that that potentially do have questions about their gender um, and that those kids do have higher rates of suicidality. Okay, fine, but you don't need to take something that's intended to address um, a very, very small percentage of the population and then apply it generally to the entire school population. You know, when when people have issues with with gender and, um, you know, it's called gender dysphoria. It's 0.005% of the population, but yet they're taking these mm-hmm. policies that are intended to address that, this very small percentage of the population, and applying it to all of our kids. And I think we're going to end up seeing that it's doing a lot of damage. You know, we already have, you know, the highest rates of suicidality, depression, anxiety among our youth that we've ever had to the point where we've had four pediatric national societies say that we have a mental health crisis, as well as our Surgeon General saying that. So, you know, we really need to take a look and and step back from all of that. And you're right, you know, this stuff used to be left to the parents or left to the the faith community, and our schools are overstepping, and we need to get back to teaching, you know, academics and expecting kids to perform academically instead of focusing on all of this other stuff. I had a superintendent say yesterday that, you know, we need to work on relationships. And I'm like, no, you don't need to work on relationships. That's the parent's job. You need to work on academics. Your schools are failing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you teach my child to read and write. Teach them to be able to succeed in life by being able to get a job so that they, can, they, they know how to present themselves and they know the skills they need, whether it's mathematics, uh, grammar, or even car shop or something like that. Teach mm-hmm. them how they can survive out there. Don't teach them all this social justice BS. No. Right. I'm sorry. Yeah. And, and when you try to change the gender of a child without the parent's permission, and the child is mm-hmm. make, going to make a informed consent when they can't even vote, much less buy cigarettes or have a drink, and you're going to let them yeah. decide how to mutilate their body for the rest of their life, and as a yeah. psychiatrist, I'm sure that you've seen the sex change regret that uh, the vast majority of these individuals end up with. Uh, the suicide rates, the drug addiction, the sexual abuse. Uh, 
you, you're destroying yeah, so, you a know, whole the, generation of people. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so the research, you, you have a very good point. So the research out there shows that after about eight to eight and a half years after transitioning, that people do end up having higher rates of mortality, um, higher rates of depression, higher rates of anxiety. And so, you know, trying to talk children into questioning their gender when maybe they never had these concerns before, you know, making them decide, you know, whether or not they need to be a he or a she and whether or not that can change the next day. Um, it, you know, you're taking away something that is a, the most stable thing in a person's life, their gender. And like I said, 99.95% of people never question it, never question it. So why are we creating this construct for kids that creates more uncertainty in their lives in a time when the world has been so uncertain anyway because of everything with COVID and, you know, the lockdowns and the masking and, um, it, you know, everything that's been going on, the economy, you know, there's so much that kids have to be concerned about nowadays that they never did before. And we're doing this. We're creating this for them. And we need to just let them be kids. Yeah, there's so much stress on these young kids coming through today. And we're not making our community safe either. So not only are you having a school system and a social justice system uh, indoctrinating our children, but we have a government that no longer can protect our communities. Uh, we, we have Black Lives Matter and Antifa and all the others burning down cities, and yet our government goes after the patriots for trespass and leave them sitting in the January 6th prisons. Uh, this is crazy. Yeah, it really is. Things are really upside down right now. You know, and we have a president that's giving away our national secrets to people that are our sworn enemies. Um, you know, we have our, our military that's kicking out people because they don't want to take a vaccine that, you know, now we've seen the evidence from Pfizer that, you know, absolutely is harmful to people. Um, and no one, they, you know, the, Initially, they were saying, follow the science, follow the science. But you notice that they stopped saying follow the science when the science no longer supported what they want you to do. Um, mm -hmm. so, but I think we do actually need to look at the science. You know, we've never in, in the history that I know of allowed a, a medication to be given to people that was causing deaths. You know, in the first three months from the initial release of that, that, those first 50 pages, um, I think, of the, the Pfizer documents, you know, we were able to see that in the first three months there were over 1,200 people that died during the trials. Why are we then going ahead and pushing forward? You know, I've been involved in medical trials where if one person died, they would stop the study and say, let's take a look at this. Um, you know, there was it seems like a very unacceptable margin and that the FDA knew about this and then still went ahead and improved it. Um, and then, you know, we have people losing their livelihoods, losing, um, you know, their homes, um, not being able to support their children, not being able to buy food because they've lost their jobs because they didn't want to take something that was uh, experimental. Um, you know, I, I think we've really given the federal government way too much power and we need to walk a lot of that back you know we need to do some investigation and find out what was going on here um you know that we had the the fda say that you know doctors couldn't prescribe antivirals even though they knew they were effective and then you know come to find out a few months later that they gave 32 billion dollars to three big pharma corporations to come up with an antiviral you know, 
who's, who's making these decisions and why are they making them? You know, even if there isn't something, you know, untoward happening, it certainly looks like it. You know, it's certainly giving the impression that they're doing something that they shouldn't be doing. And we, we need to change that about federal government. We need to have some integrity, we need to have honesty, and we need to have some transparency in all of these dealings. Well, in previous guests, we were talking about the overreach of the federal government and how these agencies use regulations as if they are law, and they bludgeon us with them. And people have been losing their livelihoods, uh, their reputations, uh, Mm -hmm. being forced into court or even facing criminal penalties for violating a regulation. Uh, How would you then start to reduce government, uh, for example, the overrun of the FBI now. They're, they're going into Patriot Houses simply because they were in D.C. on January 6th. We have uh, the, F, uh, the FCC that was going after a friend of mine um, because they claimed he, he had information on the Internet that just was stolen, was hacked from him. How do we stop this government overreach? The, the mask mandates, the vaccine mandates, how do we tell government this is not the enumerated powers of the Constitution, so it is not constitutional? You know, I think part of it is, you know, getting people in the, into Congress and into federal government that actually understand our Constitution and are willing to fight for it. You know, I made a, a, a commitment to defend our Constitution from enemies foreign and domestic when I was 19 years old, and that that commitment didn't go away just because I got out of the military. You know, that's a, that's a for life commitment that you make. And, you know, we, we have the fewest number of veterans in Congress that we've ever had since World War II. And so we need to have people in there that have an understanding of what that looks like. Um, you know, we need to make sure that the people that are sitting on these committees in Congress and the Senate are actually people that love America and that understand that it's because of our Constitution that we are a free nation. And this is the last free nation on earth. You know, I I talk to people all the time that have escaped communism to immigrate here, and they say, you know, this is exactly what was happening in my nation before, you know, communism took over. And then everyone's lives were ruined. And we came here for freedom. And now we see that freedom is leaving America, and we have to stand up and protect it because there's nowhere else left to go. And so... You know, that's one piece, you know, getting people, you know, we have card-carrying communists sitting on the intelligence boards that oversee the FBI and the CIA right now. We need to get them out of there and get some patriots, some people that actually love America and um, have a sense of what our intelligence communities should be doing. Well, we hear a lot about election integrity. And, mm-hmm. again, this, this should be a state's rights issue. The Constitution only covers yeah. it just so far, and then it's the state legislature. Right. So there we have to not only worry about the U.S. House, but we have to also have to worry our individual houses and make sure that they stay right. clean. But we hear that, oh, you can't have voter ID, and yet they want a national ID. I mean, the hypocrisy I hear coming out of the swamp is absolutely amazing. You want to nationalize the ID that we get at our local DMV, but yet you don't want us then to present that ID to vote. Does this make sense? And I think, 
it doesn't make sense and we need to call them. Every time they're talking out of both sides of the mouth, which they do on almost every issue, we need to be taking control of the narrative. Because you know, when you control the narrative, you control the culture. You know, that's, as psychologists, that's what we teach people, is that you know, we teach them how to control their own narrative so that way they can respond better in situations. So you might not be able to control the situation, but what you can control is how you respond to it. And so we, as you know, people that love this nation, need to be taking the narrative back. We need to be calling them out on every time, on every issue when they speak out of both sides of their mouths. You know, they do this with the abortion issue. They, they're doing this with the voter integrity issue. They're doing this with so many different issues, education, all of it. Um, so we need to be calling them on it, and we need to be vocal about it, and we need to not let um, any kind of algorithm on social media or whatever become our excuse as to why we're not doing something about it. Um, you know, we've been quiet and complacent long enough. That's why we're in this situation. So we need to stand well, you up know, and, you know, fight. Yes. And I don't mean, I don't mean you know, take, I, don't, I don't mean take to arms. But I mean, you know, we need to, we need to do legally what we can do. And part of that is voting. People need to get out and vote. They can't step back and say, well, my vote doesn't count. Well, certainly your vote doesn't count if you're not using it. And if you're, um, if you're leaving your vote on the table, that's a vote that someone else can use to cheat with. So, you know, you need mm -hmm. to make sure that you're not leaving any stone unturned, that you are doing what you need to do, which means being vocal about it, going out to, you know, your community and letting people know what's happening, um, going to the school board meetings, going to the, the city council meetings and the county commissioner meetings, making your voices heard. And if they're not listening to you, then you need to take it to the media. You need to take it to your social media accounts. And if it's not working one way when you post it, go to a different one. We've got all kinds of options out there now. Um, so people need to, you know, use the tools they have available to them and not sit back and, and be complacent any longer. We have to all get involved. Well, let me put it this way. Uh, when my county council sees me coming, you hear a collective groan. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean. Well, <laughs> well, you know, one of the things you talk about is restoring our fundamental liberties, such as our, our free speech and our Second Amendment rights. And our free speech and our freedom of religion, the five enumerated uh, freedoms in the uh, First Amendment uh, to petition, uh, to seek redress, is only defended if the Second Amendment stays in place. However, right. we just had Mayorkas uh, testifying before Congress about forming this Truth Police Bureau. Uh, I forget what the heck he calls this piece of crap. But this is very, very scary. The Misinformation Bureau? Uh, so yeah. what do you call misinformation? The original stories coming out of Wuhan that the virus was leaked from the lab that the Chinese created the virus was called misinformation, but lo and behold, it is in the end proven to be the truth. And we see this time and time and time again. If they stifle our voice, we no longer will exist as a nation. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, I think we need to get the right people in Congress so we can do away with that. Um, that would be one of the first things to go. Um, we absolutely need to be calling out our president, and we need Congress members that are going to take action, because that's what they're there to do. They're there to provide checks and balance, right? So they are there to make sure that our executive branch stays in line. So we need to be doing things like repealing some of the things that were happening or that got passed 
in the Patriot Act and some of these other things that have gotten passed since then to give more and more power to the executive branch. We need to get that into, into right order as it was created in our Constitution. So that way Congress can act, they can make changes, they can make sure that things like this, um, a misinformation bureau or whatever they're calling it, um, does not go through. Um, because we can't allow our president or an executive of any any level in our government to be censoring American voices. Um, we need to stand up against that and we need to stand up very strongly against that. Because you're right, you know, if we allow our, our government to start dictating to the media, which this, this administration has openly said that they are doing, that they're working with big media to censor voices. Um, we need to be standing really strongly against that and every member of Congress needs to be doing that. Um, and that can happen when we get the right people in there. And I think it will this time. Well, you know, I think people are, they're not, people aren't stupid. They see what's going on and they're tired of it. They're ready for a change. Well, I, I practically fell out of my Archie Bunk chair uh, was last night or the night before when Biden was touting the economy and has the lowest <laughs> deficit since. And I'm like, uh, all right, where's the misinformation bureau when you need it? But <laughs> I mean, how would you try to help us reinvigorate our economy and rein in government at the same time? So I think we need to lower taxes. Um, you know, that has been a, a proven way over and over again every time we do it. When we eliminate some of the tax burden on Americans and on businesses, it allows them to then reinvest in the community to create more jobs. You know, small business is the biggest um, employer in our nation. And so more people are hired and employed through small businesses than anywhere else. And so, you know, we need to make sure we're reducing the tax burden so they have that that revenue available to then reinvest in the community. Um, you know, we need to get manufacturing jobs back into the United States. We need to reduce regulation on our farmers and on our logging industry so those pieces which are strong in my district um, can flourish. Um, and get those back into the United States where we're not importing so much of our food. We're allowing our farmers to grow what they need to grow, not having the government tell them what they should grow. Um, you know, we need to, um, and then we wouldn't be dealing with so many of these distribution issues, right? Because we wouldn't be waiting six months or a year for something to get unloaded off of a, a you know, into a port. Um, so there's a lot that we can do those ways. Um, I think with the deregulation and with the the lessening of, a, of the tax burden, I think that would solve a lot of the issues that would help to make sure our economy is growing, you know, making sure that our education system is working well so that way kids are ready to get into the community, be working, um, you know, for if we're using some of these technical programs which are super, super successful at helping kids be ready to enter the workforce um, right out of high school and not having to necessarily go to college. Um, those programs are fantastic for creating workers, you know, people that are ready to enter the workforce, not only while they're in high school, but immediately after, you know, having jobs already lined up. So I think those are some of the ways that we can absolutely reinvigorate our economy and make sure that we have a workforce that's ready to go. All right. Now, Angela Plowhead, when is your primary? It should be coming up very shortly. It is. It's May 17th. And we have uh, right mail-in voting here. 
Yeah, we have mail-in voting here in Oregon, so people already have their ballots. Oh, wow. Yeah. Now, people can find you and help support your campaign. Even though they don't live in your state, they can make a donation with your campaign. And your website is AngelaForOregon.com, correct? It is, yes. And, you know, I would encourage people, you know, when these Congress people get to Washington, they are voting for you. It doesn't matter if you live in their district. It doesn't matter if you live in their state. These are extremely important positions. So find people that you like that represent your values and support them across states, across districts, because it, these are extremely important positions that have impact nationally and internationally. And so um, absolutely, people can invest in me and getting me to Congress and helping me to kind of get the message out by going to AngelaForOregon.com. All right, Angela, well, I wish you a lot of luck on May 17th, and have a very blessed and happy Mother's Day. Thank you. You as well. I know you said you don't have kids, but it sounds like you certainly have, you know, children of your heart, so. <laughs> yes. All the people that belong to my tea party, they're my babies. <laughs> All right. Yes. Angela Plowhead. All right. Check her out. God bless. Uh, Angela Thank for you, you Oregon. Angela for Oregon.com. All right. We've got our next victim up in the ballroom here. Uh, let's bring him out of the ball pen, uh, Dr. Josh Umber. Umber. Uh, he is the founder, uh, and I'm going to mess this up already, <laughs> of Atlas MD. Good afternoon, Dr. Josh. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, you had some interesting things to say about um, telemed. And for a long, long time, very, very few practices even offered that. And it only came out, I would say, in the last 10, 15 years. But actually, I was, I was fascinated to find out that uh, actually back as far as 1876, it was recommended. That, that blew my mind. Yeah. Right? I mean, you get lost in how far history goes back. So explain exactly what telemed is if people have never been exposed to it. Well, I think especially now post-COVID, telemedicine includes uh, a lot of things. It's the option to email, text, video chat your doctor, but also using your smartwatch or your home blood pressure cuff uh, or your health app to track your data and share that with your physician to make healthcare easier, faster, cheaper, or more personal. Well, you know, it's funny because when you, you talk about that, I'm looking at my cell phone, and on the back of my cell phone is mounted my Cardia Mobile, uh, yes. which I have hooked up with, with Bluetooth uh, to my blood pressure cuff, so I can, at a heart's notice, Heart, heart notice, uh, email uh -huh. it to my GP as well as my cardiologist uh, so that they can monitor whatever condition I'm in. And um, every time I show this to another physician, they're fascinated by something as, as simple as that that could help ensure a patient's health or even diagnose something happening to them uh, before it becomes a major emergency. It's such a great empowering tool for patients to have uh, readily available data. You know, even five, six, seven years ago, something like an EKG, which you know seems obvious now, you could only get at the doctor's office and typically only through insurance, or you're going to be paying a hundred dollars for it. 
uh, every time you do it, you're saving $100, or you're getting more information to know what your health is doing. And uh, wh- why wouldn't we want that level of access for everybody to, uh, especially during a pandemic, to give patients more tools that they can use uh, in their own lifestyle without necessarily having to go through the doctor, file insurance paperwork, have a big bill? Well, you know, before the pandemic hit, um, it was I was seeing some companies start to move into it. And um, I do have a concierge service for my GP uh, through MDVIP. And in a way, they were also starting in the forefront of that. You know, here's the email for your doctor. Hospitals were starting to do that, putting your records up online for you to access. Uh, but with the pandemic, it's really expanded. But it had to fight an uphill battle. Um, what changed pre-pandemic to pandemic? What? Do, why is it now that we see more of this? Is it because of the pandemic, or was there regulations that prohibited them? What's the story here? Yeah, you know, pre-pandemic there was a movement of concierge or direct care doctors uh, encouraging patients to use this technology outside of the normal insurance system. And so it was getting a little bit of traction, but then HIPAA, the standard patient privacy rules, were slowing that down for the most part. Um, I mean, we're talking about a a 1996 law that hasn't changed nearly as much as the technology has. So there was a lot of ambiguity around that. and Nobody wants to do that wrong and have the government come down on them. So that heavy-handed and kind of blunt legislature uh, held the, the, the movement back and ultimately harmed patients. Fast forward to the start of the pandemic, March 2020, and suddenly they realized we need an entirely new way to think about how we uh, encourage telemedicine. And we can't be telling people to stay at home for two weeks to flatten the curve, while at the same time limiting their ability to call, text, email uh, their doctor. I think the ability of schools to pivot to Zoom said, well, clearly we should be allowing patients to do something similar. And that's when the government, more or less with the strike of a pin, changed it from standard HIPAA to the what they called the good faith principle. And as long as doctors and, and medical professionals were in good faith taking care of patients, not doing anything crazy like tracking data or selling data, then the government was going to give them a very wide range of, of options. And ultimately, I think that's worked out great for patients. And I think it's something we're going to have to fight to keep, uh, but I don't think the government wants to take it back too much because patients will be upset. They've learned the value of emailing their doctor instead of taking pay time off from work. Uh, they're remote working, and they may not be going into town. So they don't want to you know, drive and fight traffic for their doctor if they can find you know, acceptable alternatives. You know, um, the HIPAA Act, when it came in, I was under the assumption that just protected the, pre- the patient confidentiality and privacy between doctor and patient. But you're saying that the government was using it to put a barrier up so that this stuff, you couldn't do it? via online or via a video chat or something like that? They made it much harder. 
because it was such a, a heavy-handed piece of legislation without a lot of details that you're right, it's the patient to act uh, in terms of so that that privacy in 96 when people were more worried about, quote, hackers and, and you know, the Internet and what all this means, well, now we're sharing our workouts on Facebook and people are, you know, uh, tweeting from the ER and in all this social information that it just wasn't shared 20, 25 years ago. And it never really adapted. So, And they never really had a plan for how they would say, yes, this type of texting is, is okay, this type of texting is not. Um, so it, it led companies to default to a very secure version of software, but it became so secure it was non-functional. Uh, I can text a picture of a check to my bank and they'll deposit it. Is it 100.00% secure? Probably not. Is it secure enough that I haven't lost money and presumably the bank hasn't either? Apparently, because they let us do it. So there is this evolving conversation of security versus convenience for, for patients and customers. And when it came to healthcare, we just drew a hard line and, and patients got no customer service. Uh, the stress test of the pandemic forced us to rethink that. Well, is there anyone working uh, with Congress to amend the HIPAA Act to allow more freedom with telemed? It, it's not a current topic, uh, or there's no proposed legislation right now, I think, in part just because there's so much other things going on. Um, we're hoping that they actually just leave it as it is. The good faith principle as it stands seems to be working out wonderful. And generally, when things go through Congress, they don't get better. Um, so at this point, I think the best option is to fight for the status quo and give us a few more years to see what that could look like. Because, again, five years ago, I couldn't say, have your watch send me an EKG. What will we have in five more years? Uh, presumably, looking at you know the tech news, your watch could be checking your blood pressure and your blood sugar. These would have enormous uh, effects on our preventative health care abilities. That means better, faster, cheaper, easier care. That, that helps everyone. Uh, it's really fascinating. Um, but you also have people that are technophobes, uh, that they they don't know how to work it. Or if they're of a certain age or physical, mental capacity, they can't do it. So how does telemed then benefit them? Yeah, um, and, and that's the best part about telemedicine is that it is optional. Uh, if you don't feel like you want to use it or can use it, that's fine. But it may also still benefit those patients because when they do go to the doctor, the doctor will have more time for them. Instead of seeing 30 people a day in the office and checking vitals and moving from room to room and filling up the waiting room with people who might be coughing, et cetera, those patients might be able to get 30 or 45 minutes of attention from their doctor because the little stuff, the easy things uh, that can be handled by technology are being handled and, again, just improving the experience uh, when you are in the office. Well, you know, when telemed was first coming out, I had been, I have to admit, skeptical uh, because a lot of doctors are still need to see the patient. 
how what is their stride? How are they standing? Uh, what is the actual color of their skin? Can you see how their breathing is without having to put the stethoscope to them? There's little subtle things that a doctor can notice on a patient that you can't see on the other side of a video camera screen. Yeah, and I, I think there is always going to be a place for the in-office visit, um, just like there's probably always going to be in-person shopping, but we all still love Amazon. Um, on some level, we we like Netflix or Hulu or Amazon Prime, but we don't miss Blockbuster and, and going in for a physical uh, you know, copy of a movie. The, uh, the telemedicine side is a tool, and I think that tool is best used when you have it in combination with the doctor that you can go back to and see in person. Uh, the occasional cough and cold doctor that might be in another state that's less valuable, but it might be the right size care at the time. Um, but a lot of patients will tell me more about their depression or their anxiety by email because they're so anxious about coming to the, the office that they don't get their words out as well. Um, patients with uh, pink eye or spider bite that are, are worried about these things, I'll say, well, shoot me a picture every two hours. Let's watch this and see if it's changing but I couldn't really functionally have a patient come back to the office every two hours, right? It gives us a lot of options to um, start care sooner, to enrich that experience, and to follow up with it longer. Maybe we had the initial visit on your diagnosis, but then sending a text or an email each week for a couple of weeks to, to say, now are we getting better? Are we doing what we talked about and taking those next steps? Um, that that adds to the quality and the richness of, I think, the doctor-patient experience. All right. Well, now, with telemed, looks like it's going to be something permanent. It looks like it, right? What needs to be done now? What steps have to be taken so we can move this forward so it's available to anyone who chooses that option? I think the, the big part will be that patients who enjoy the benefits of that are going to have to keep asking for it. Either they're going to have to support the direct care doctors uh, like ourselves or NDVIP or those types of groups, uh, or they're going to have to tell their employer, which is where most people get their insurance, this is just as important to me as what my copay looks like or remote working. And if I'm remote working, I might want a remote doctor. I'm, I'm more comfortable with tech. And, and now I can choose a doctor from a wider area, not just the one closest to work, because that's what I need to do for my commute. And it really will be driven by, I think, uh, patient responsiveness and demand. Uh, we have a, a variety of things that are, are prohibiting this from crossing over state lines. What is what What is it that stops it? I mean, you're a doctor that practices medicine. You should be able to practice medicine throughout all the United States, correct? Uh, I think on some level, yeah, uh, especially since so many states have such similar rules for being a physician. You know, you have to go to med school. You have to go to residency. Uh, you have to keep up your training. Um, it, it's not uncommon for states to offer reciprocity for marriage license, uh, gun control, um, all sorts of things. And if you take a state like Wyoming, which has a population the size of our 
uh, you know, met metropolis area here, that means they'll never have as many specialists in their entire state as we will have in one location. They'd just be too spread out. When they, uh, they could offer a huge service to their residents by saying, here, work with a doctor from anywhere or approved states or something. And then we wouldn't have as many doctor shortage issues because we would, we would fix the distribution. And if you have depression or anxiety and mental health workers are in a shortage, great. Well, now I don't have to drive across the state. I can set up a video chat and be very efficient with my schedule. My daughter has Down syndrome. So she needs special care, and those providers are spread out. So there's lots of ways to, to streamline that. Dr. Josh, this is the co-host. Yes, yes. We have something, and I'm sure you heard of it, Doctors Without Borders. Why not have that on the home front here? Uh, it, no, it's a great question uh, and, a, and a great reference point. If we allow this, if we allow American-trained doctors to go overseas because their license is viewed as good regardless of which state they came from, why would we limit that at home? Um, don't we want faster care, easier care? Don't we want some level of competition between doctors so that they, you know, are price sensitive and help patients have and find affordable care? Uh, I, I think it'd be hard to make an argument against that. So you're right. The, if we have doctors without borders abroad, if, if it's good for them, um, it's, it kind of makes sense at home. It does. It does. Uh, you list three different things, and that was the first one, you know, organizations to help make it access across state lines. Um, but you also mentioned um, that telemed is not available to all areas of the medical profession. Why not? Uh, because it, that that switch with COVID wasn't uh, across the board. Um, you know, you've got different specialties that are either more in-person, like surgery or physical therapy, and things that could be more uh, flexible to uh, call, text, email, video chat, conversations about migraines or depression or anxiety. Um, a lot of skin stuff works really well by images in the video because a lot of that skin stuff is uh, more minor than, than major. So as each specialty adjusted to these new changes, some were more willing to be on that leading edge of innovation, and some were kind of holding back and watching to see how it all unfold. Well, do you foresee it being used widespread through all areas of the medical profession? I think Pandora's box has been opened. Uh, to go backwards, I can't think of a time with technology where we've gone backwards much, right? Um, people aren't using Amazon less. They might be using Netflix a little bit less because of the price changes, but they're not using streaming services less. And we're, we're only texting more, emailing more, uh, enjoying the benefits of you know, Spotify or uh, whatever else services there because we get, our lives are being enriched by technology. Things are easier and cheaper and faster. Uh, remote schooling, uh, another great example. For some people, they thrive in that model. So uh, to go back and say that people will prefer harder appointments, slower scheduling, seven-minute visits, just seems unlikely. 
Well, you know, the other thing is is that a lot of places require that you're, you have an in-person visit before you're eligible for telemed. Does that seem reasonable? Uh, yes and no. Um, I think there's groups out there right now. There's an article yesterday about uh, a company, online company doing controlled meds like ADHD that's getting um, uh, investigated by the government for probably being too fast and too loose with those types of controlled medicines. Um, so we always want to be self-regulating. But uh, at the same time, moving forward and saying, how can we do this better? Uh, how can more providers learn best practices? Um, you know, it, it'll be a, a growth phase, a learning phase, but I, I think it'll just continue to expand. Well, you know, when you when you pointed out these three things, uh, obviously you're a pilot because you said we should stick the landing. What do you mean by that? Uh, we we just got to do it right. If we're quiet, if we're passive, if we um, don't communicate well with our legislators uh, by calling, texting, or emailing them. Uh, if they don't know this is something that people value, they may change this bill uh, in a way that when people aren't watching. And we have to let our doctors know. We have to let our legislators know. We have to let our employers and our insurance companies know that for a lot of people, this offers a benefit. And we've got to make sure that we kind of dot our T's and cross our I's and, and hold their feet to the fire that this is something important to a lot of people so that uh, it continues. Well, you know, we see a, a drop in the availability of health care providers, especially in rural communities. So would this be the ideal thing, not just for an urban community, but for that rural community that may not have that family doctor that can make the house cool, or there is not a hospital or a clinic or anything near them? Yeah. Uh, you know, in the city, you might go 10 miles and take 30 minutes, but in the country, you might go 30 miles in 30 minutes, and you might have to drive a gas-guzzling farm vehicle to do it. Or there might not be a pharmacy for an hour, and these kind of things, uh, are, it's really important that they have uh, access as well, and whether, whether you're fighting traffic or just a countryside. So if you can't get a healthcare provider to move there directly, then at least empower the tools so that the people can connect. Technology makes it a very small world. We are in different states. If we could you know, only be on radio shows within my zip code or you could only interview people who could drive and be in the studio, it would be a very different experience. Uh, if we're <laughs> embracing technology everywhere else, let's use it for rural cities. Let's, then they can call a specialist and, and see them with video uh, and not drive you know, three, 400 miles across Kansas to do the same thing. And uh, I think they'll be even some of the earlier adopters of new tech if it uh, improves their lives. Well, you know, there's two things I see a downside to this for. Uh, for the longest time, pharmaceutical companies could not advertise on TV or anything like that. But now with the onslaught of the advertising, uh, people watch these commercials and all of a sudden they imagine they have these diseases or problems and require that medication. 
uh, I my suggestion is always go back to the old where it was. Take the middleman out between the pharmaceutical companies and and the patient. It, take the take that out. That that money making link in between that sells you a product. Take away the advertising. Bring it back to the old school. You may have a few less problems with the patients, but the other thing is people who actually shop. And I mean that if you can't get that opioid through your regular GP, you go on, find yourself a telemed website that may be able to prescribe it for you. Even though you may be addicted and you shouldn't be having it, and that's why your doctor won't give you, but they'll shop to get the things they want. How do you prevent that? Um, you know, I, I think it's hard to shop online to get opioids legally from a doctor. That for so long, that's been so restricted. It, it'll happen in the sense that you can't stop anything, um, but it's going to be the exception, not the rule. And, and most doctors are, are pretty cautious about um, prescribing controlled meds, either across state lines or at all. Um, I mean, we, we've really shrunk in that. Uh, but I, I'd also say we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. The inverse of that is uh, the same technology that could hurt people uh, could help them. And substance abuse programs that function online uh, are oftentimes easier for people to access because they're not going to go drive and park somewhere. They don't want to be seen. They don't want to take time off work. Um, they're already hiding a lot. And we need to be able to reach them through these technology means. Um, but it, it makes, yeah, you know, the same fire that lights the cave you know, makes the smoke. But the longer we're doing it, the better we get at it, um, the more of that we can control. You know, we can watch doctors prescribing and pharmacists are double-checking that, that where is this controlled medicine coming from and is it coming from out-of-state lines and, and whether or not they fill it. So there's checks and balances in place with the downside and a lot of uh, – uh, unmet opportunity on the upside. Well, you know, it's it's easy to switch pharmacies. Um, it's, I had a problem when the uh, pandemic hit because my pharmacy just couldn't keep a pharmacist on staff. So I said, the heck with this. I go across the street to the one directly across the street, and I have no problem. So, you know, that's where I'm also seeing where there is a potential, where your pharmacist knows you, and knows your prescriptions, and all you have to do is say, well, I just want this one transferred and leave everything else here. And it, I still see a, a possibility of it being abused, but there's no central data bank because the information between the medical provider and the patient under the HIPAA Act must be kept private, which I completely agree with. But uh, with telemed and being able to do something and simply make a phone call to the pharmacy said, pick this one up off of Walgreens and bring it over here to Publix and fill it for me. Actually, that's the nice part. Most uh, essentially every state requires now what they call a prescription drug monitoring program for any basically controlled medication, Schedule 1 and Schedule 2, so that doctors now have the ability when prescribing those and often the responsibility to check that. Um, database and say, all right, how much are they getting? Are they getting anything from any other pharmacies, uh, you know, any other doctors, in-state, out-of-state? So we actually have a lot of tools in place to look for that and stop that kind of thing. So then you've got the pharmacist checking that database. 
Uh, you've got the doctor checking that database. So it, it makes it probably harder now than ever to get um, controlled medications from multiple doctors. Well, do you have a website that people can go on to to learn more about telemed and maybe even ask you questions? Yeah, our website is atlas.md. Uh, and again, we're a direct care practice. To find practices like us in your area, just often Google direct care in, in your city or town. Uh, but direct care doctors are uh, trying to lead the charge of telemedicine in a lot of ways. Well, do you see any sort of an organization maybe forming to help uh, promote telemed? Uh, a lot of the uh, American Academy of Pediatrics is, uh, I'm sorry, American Academy of Family Physicians is very pro-telemedicine. There's also an interstate telemedicine compact where doctors can get licensed in multiple states just for telemedicine. Um, and um, so the, the movement seems to be marching forward well. COVID's pushed that forward, and we just need to continue that momentum. Well, you know, it's a lot of great work and a lot of great information you put out there. And um, have you written any articles that people can uh, tag on to and understand more about this? Uh, yeah, our uh, op-ed at Real Clear uh, Health and, uh, is probably the best one for this topic. And then uh, we've got a, a number of YouTube videos under Atlas or my last name, Umber, U-M-B-E-H-R, uh, that talk about direct care, uh, medications, uh, how to find the best price, different things like that for consumer-driven health care. Well, you know, thank you for the hard work and bringing this to the forefront so people know out there. I mean, we've got a large aging population, and, uh, and I, I guess this needs to be told so that people know what they can do, where they can go from the comfort of their easy chair and still get the medical care they need. I agree. Well, Dr. Josh Umber, uh, have a great day and enjoy your Mother's Day's weekend with your family. Thank you, and you as well. Okay. Uh, check them out, uh, Atlas MD. All right, so uh, Curtis is trying to get our next guest in on the line, and hopefully we'll be able to bring her on in a few moments. Uh, fingers crossed, and we'll see uh, what we got. But uh, we're coming close to the end of the show. And uh, there is so much more to talk about, and hopefully he's got it uh, working now. So just bear with us as we try to figure out what is going on here. Um, this is an article that I found very, very interesting uh, up on Judicial Watch, and it looks like we don't have our guest, and he's having a problem with that. All right. Well, the article on ju 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 Judicial Watch has it where um, a nonprofit gets a no-bid U.S. contract after hiring, now catch this, drum roll, a Biden official, with, and they received $17 million in unused hotels for migrants. And Judicial Watch has it where a nonprofit that hired a Biden administration official received, not see, this nonprofit hired the Biden administration official, received a huge no-bid government contract that wasted $17 million on unused hotel rooms. Drum roll. Drum roll. It is on illegal immigrants. And, oh, all right. Um, no, it is. It is an incorrect. No, here is four, four ninth. Yeah. Okay. 
Well, we were given a wrong phone number, Curtis. Curtis, we were given a wrong phone number, so hopefully she'll be able to call in. Um, yeah. Yeah, I called twice. I don't twice. know why. Yeah. All right, so let me see if I can just send a quick little message over to Tom and tell him that we got a problem here. Uh, Houston, we have a problem. No, no, I don't want my bank. I went over here. Jeez, how did that, that pop up? All right, let's try this. All right, here we go. All right, send him a quick quick text. Um, okay, I'm just saying Sarah's number is the wrong one. Yeah. Okay, a wrong number. Hi, that sir. seems to be the case. Yeah, well, hopefully that uh, she'll realize what time it is and she'll call in. Because uh, with her, we were going to talk about SCOTUS and everything else. But let me just get through this while uh, we wait for her to call in. So if you keep an eye on the studio while I'm looking down at this thing. Um, so $17 million in unused hotel rooms for illegal immigrants. A federal audit reveals that uh, the politically connected group, which had no experience, Repeat, no experience providing services covered by the sole source federal contract also failed to meet COVID-19 health protocols uh, when the deal was signed. Now, you have something like this. You're supposed to go out for a multiple bid contract. You put it out there that you have this service that the government wants to provide. Multiple contractors come in and place their bid. Then the bids are researched, audited, examined. And then, hopefully, the government picks the rest, the best bid. Well, this didn't happen in this situation. These unused hotel rooms for illegal immigrants that were unused uh, wasted $17 million of our tax dollars in just this one instance. How many more are out there? That's a good question. Uh, The highly questionable arrangement was executed by Immigration and Customs Enforcement the Homeland Security Agency responsible for housing migrant families in detention. The agency typically uses family residential centers to house family units, but in early 2021, ICE anticipated the increased apprehensions of illegal families along the southern border and awarded a contract to harbor them in hotels while completing the intake process orders from the Department of Homeland Security Inspector General explained in a report. The group received the lucrative no-bid award. Endeavors had never provided beds or all-inclusive emergency family residential services when ICE hired it to do so. Formerly known as Family Endeavors, the Texas-based nonprofit claims to quote, now catch this one, I love the word plague, passionately serve vulnerable people in crisis through its innovative, personalized approach. Last year, a national news outlet reported that Endeavors won a colossal $530 million government contract just months after it hired Biden administration official Andrew Lorenzen Strait as its senior director for migrant services and federal affairs. The contract is by far the largest ever awarded to the nonprofit, according to the article, and is potentially worth 
more than 12 times the group's most recently reported annual budget. Lorenzo Strait, a former ICE official who also advised the Biden-Harris transition team on Department of Homeland Security policy and staffing matters. You think maybe he pulled some strings, Curtis? Did I no doubt. <laughs> no doubt. I mean, this the corruption coming out of this White House, this administration, is mind blowing. You got my office with the uh, Truth Ministry hiring a woman that does TikTok videos that shows her complete biasness against free speech in charge of the Truth Ministry. And he testifies before Congress he had no idea when he hired her. I'm sorry. Uh, Wait, 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 wait. wait. When I used to go for a job interview, there was always a background check. You know, you had to come in with references. And back then, it wasn't the social media. And they would make phone calls to the people that you had on there to verify that you are and you worked where you claimed you worked. You had the education. You did a background check before you hired that person. A person doesn't come in and front of you and chats with you for five minutes and then all of a sudden you hire them without research. What the? Now, even today, they go beyond just a background check. They, they, they look at your social media platform, which includes Facebook. Twitter, whatever, to see what you got out there. So there's no excuse for them. You know, I really don't think they have an excuse for saying they didn't know this, they didn't know that. They knew it. No. They just ignored it. No, no. And, and, and this is this is pure, absolute corruption. This is the buddy-buddy system. We see it with Jen Psaki going to MSNBC. We see it with the new press secretary, with, with obvious obvious disdain and bias for the press, much less conservative press, uh, being hired because of her sexual, racial, and uh, gender preference background. Not because of her qualifications, but because she fit a little niche. But then her girlfriend or wife or whatever you want to call her partner works for MSNBC. And you just see a ring of corruption, of corruption going around and around and around this administration. And where where are our representatives? Where is there any sort of an investigation into this administration? Where's the call for impeachment? They were quick to do that with Trump, with a false, faked dossier. But no, it's, it's hands off on President Biden who shared, never have been elected in the first place. That's because our leadership in Congress really was against Trump. They mm-hmm. didn't support him, really. No. But so now we see something... The they're not we going see something the as, No. But, you know, you see something as blatant as this Endeavor nonprofit. And the corruption of an official from the Biden administration, Andrew Lorenz Strait. We see this going on with Jen Psaki. We see this going on with the new press secretary. We see it time and time and time again. We see it with Mayorkas hiring this TikTok star 
to head up the Truth Bureau. And and where's the media? All right. Well, it looks like, ah, yeah, he did give us a wrong number. <laughs> so let's bring back onto the show Sarah Parshall Perry of Heritage Foundation. Uh, and she is the senior legal fellow for the Edward Meese Center Third, Edward Meese the Third Center. Uh, boy, am I being dyslexic today for the legal and judicial studies. Good afternoon and welcome back, Sarah. He gave us a wrong well, number. Well, thanks for having me. <laughs> thanks for having me back. <laughs> Oh, it is our pleasure, our pleasure. I was on a bit of a rant uh, because there's so much crap going on in this administration and in this cycle that it's, it's, it has your head spinning. Uh, yes, and <laughs> Now, we now have an attack on the Supreme Court, but, and we're finding policy of this administration is to get someone on the inside and leak the information out there to rile up the left and we see this now with the potential ruling in the Roe v. Wade case. And right. suddenly now we've got protests going out in front of the House of the Supreme Court. Wait a minute. I do remember when we had um, eminent domain debate in was it Bridgeport, Connecticut. And was it Justice Breyer and that everyone was upset with? And yes. it was threatened that people were going to protest and all said, no, 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 everything's on lockdown. You can't go near. Oh, no, you're a terrorist. You can't go near. But suddenly this is OK today. What changed? Well, I'm going to tell you, there are only really one series of explanations for this. And that's that a few more conservative justices have been confirmed and are now sitting on the Supreme Court. And the leftists got what they want. And Bostock versus Clayton County, in Obergefell versus Hodges, and California versus Texas. Every single time a big case came out that favored leftist interests, whether it was Obamacare or gender identity, I have to tell you the hypocrisy between the left and the right is absolutely stunning to me. You did not see conservatives or Republicans or right-leaning philosophers or judicial scholars out in the streets. No, we accepted that this is the highest court in the land. And this is a determination that they and their wisdom have made. They do not take their jobs lightly. They are bound to interpret the Constitution as written, statutes as written, and they are not to read into it any personal ideologies. Now, do we know that happens sometimes? Yes, I'm sure there are moments when a justice cannot help but be swayed by their own moral or philosophical leanings. But these are good, eminently qualified justices, all of them with exceptional pedigrees. We have accepted judicial decisions that have not been favorable to conservative interests, and we've not gone out in the streets and called for marches on their homes. The particular group Ruth sent me or Ruth sent us has now published a map on its website of the personal residences of the five conservative Supreme Court justices. They have had to more than triple security at each of the justices' homes. And I have to tell you, these individuals are also parents, every one of them parents and grandparents. And it's unconscionable to me that their personal private information is being shared on a public platform with calls to, quote, march by 
on Wednesday, the 11th, when in fact, I think what this is only going to do is further inflame the debate and ultimately try to intimidate the justices into somehow changing their votes. It's, it's really something unlikely we've ever seen. Well, wouldn't this be considered government insurrection, attempting to change our form of government and how it acts by violent force? I will tell you, there are a number of potential criminal underlying penalties here, not the least of which are two sections of the 18 USC criminal code in which the obstruction of justice, the intimidation of a federal officer, the interference with performance of judicial duties, all could be involved. And it's interesting to me that January 6th, obviously, was an insurrection on the nation's capital, and yet here we are in the place of personal residence of federal officers who sit on the highest court in the land, and this is nothing short of an attempt to interfere with the performance of their duties as justices. So it is very possible that there are underlying criminal penalties here, and I'm hoping that the individuals who are taking place in these particular walk-bys and these particular riots are mindful of that fact. Uh, I don't see uh, anything honestly happening. I really, with the, the way this administration behaves, it's going to get shoved under the rug, and they're going to try to use it to force the Supreme Court to change their decision. And that's a very, very, very scary thought. Yes, yes, absolutely. I have to tell you that this has been and is as written into the Constitution, as understood by our founders, to be the only non-political branch. We have the executive, we have the legislature, but the judiciary is to be apolitical. It is to stay out of political matters. Its task under its sworn oath is to interpret and apply the Constitution and the laws of the United States as written and apply them to the facts at hand. These individuals are now being personally targeted because they are indicating in a draft opinion, again, not a final opinion, and this is a draft dating back to February 10th. We have no idea whether or not the the votes have remained the same, the draft has remained the same. It is entirely possible that after oral arguments, justices, upon reading initial drafts, decide to change their votes. It's not entirely likely, but it definitely has happened. But their internal workings and their deliberations must be held entirely confidential because otherwise to involve outside forces, to intimidate, to call individuals to picket or march or harass outside their homes, how can those justices feel anything other than the exterior pressures of what's going on with public opinion? Now, we know Chief Justice John Roberts issued a public statement last week saying to the extent that the leak was designed to make us change our votes or interfere with our work, it will not happen, and I give him kudos for that. However, these justices are also human beings, and I do know that at least two of the conservative justices have school-age children. So I find myself in the position not only as a lawyer alongside these other lawyers, but also as a mother thinking it would be very difficult for me not to feel the intensity of the fire of public opinion and public discord that close to where I live, breathe, and work. And my prayer for these justices is ultimately that they stay the course, that they understand public opinion waxes and wanes, and that they've, again, 
to clarify, and I've said this in more interviews than I could possibly count this week, this is not an overruling of the rights to abortion, but rather a return to neutrality in the Constitution. The Supreme Court is not intending to make abortion illegal. It has simply said this is a matter better suited for the states under the Tenth Amendment of the Constitution. And in fact, multiple states have already expanded abortion access in anticipation of overturning of Roe versus Wade. So it is not as though every woman in the country is no longer going to be able to get an abortion. What they've done is simply said the state houses, the state legislatures are places where these issues, moral, philosophical, legal issues should be debated. They should be voted upon. Individuals should be able to vote their values. That is the appropriate source not the Supreme Court, and not the Constitution where it was never found. Well, you know, I completely agree with that because I've been saying that for years, uh, for years, but I've also gone even further than that. When they did the ruling on defining marriage, not only did they take away a state's right, but they violated the First Amendment by defining a religious right. Therefore, they are defining religion. Right. That's even more. I will say that we're hearing we're hearing a lot of sort of discussion about the fact that this is ultimately going to eliminate other what they call privacy-based rights. So the right to, for example, contraception or same-sex marriage or interracial marriage. And to that I say, as a lawyer and a court watcher, it's utterly ridiculous. And here's why. Because Alito said this in his opinion and Blackman said this in his opinion 50 years ago in Roe. Abortion is different. Why? Because it involves the termination of an unborn life, a third party to the transaction who gets no say in the matter. In that way, it is utterly different than any other right found in the 14th Amendment to the Constitution, which is what formed the foundation of same-sex marriage, contraception, some of the hotbed, very controversial issues that we've seen in the court in the past years. But this won't roll it back. It's nothing but pre-election hysteria on the part of the left, but we can anticipate more than this because the Democrats know that they are going to take an absolute beating on November 8th. Sarah. Well, go ahead, Curtis. I was just gonna say I agree with you. Um, Whenever we hear a ruling that goes against us, our side and our beliefs, we we accept it, but these guys on the left, they're yeah. always out there throwing a tantrum. They're out there giving out addresses of um, the people involved that they they hold, you know, responsible for going against their will, and and they commit to violence, you know. And then they have the nerve and audacity to um, take an incident like January the sixth and try to make a big deal out of that, and you never hear anything about um, Portland. That lasted yes. for months, just violence yes. all over the place. But you don't hear or a peek out of little... it. It's always about the insurrection of January yes. the 6th. Or the Seattle uprising where they decided they were going to create their own nation state in Chaz in the middle of Seattle <laughs> itself. Listen, we know, we know that the leftists are not and never have been intellectually honest. Here's the thing. We have what my friend and colleague and younger attorney colleague in the B Center, Amy Swearer, who does Second Amendment right law, says to me is we have the receipts. In other words, all the facts, all the data, 
are ours. The problem is the left doesn't operate on facts and data. They operate on histrionics and emotion and drama and inconsistency and rhetoric and ultimately Marxism because we know the entire nation is trending leftward, at least the coastal elites are. And I think that they are beginning to realize how deeply unpopular some of their talking points are, not just on abortion, but on everything from removing religious liberty protections, which they are anticipating doing through the Department of Health and Human Services for religious doctors and nurses and medical practitioners, to expanding Title IX, which protects women and girls in educational endeavors from sex discrimination, expanding that to include gender identity. They're now realizing that they have gone too far, too left, too quickly in the first 18 months of this administration. And I honestly think we are in a mad scramble watching them try to get it back. So all of the hysteria now in these sort of series of uprisings from New York to Washington, D.C. to Los Angeles, which have already begun, We're literally going to see the needle, I move, I think, move sort of proportionately to the right as a response. Well, that's going to be a huge amen to that one. I mean, the attack on Title IX uh, is absolutely phenomenal. I I grew up while it was being put in place because we did not have the ability to enter professional sports or get the scholarships with the same access that men do. And it was meant to give us a leg up to help us, you know, achieve the careers, the professions, or whatever we wanted to achieve equally. It doesn't mean equity. It just meant equality. It gave us an equal chance to compete. But now with the violation of Title IX, with this transgenders coming in there, when you know they are biologically men and we're being forced to accept them and violate Title IX – is is absolutely uh, – I'm, I'm trying to think of the proper word. I'd say insane, but I think it's going beyond sa- insanity. I mean, it is yeah. direct I, I would assault agree with on that. our society. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Listen, we've, we've seen research that indicates and, – and philosophers have written for years about the fact that constitutional republics, which is what we truly are, these democratically representative governments have a tendency to last at – top end, 250 years. Well, guess what? We are approaching our expiration date. And I find it very interesting that the more significant the gains are made by the progressive left, the more they ask for, the wilder their theories are, the more intensely they try to convince the right and the centrist of their perspective, the more I think we're sort of hearing the hoofbeats of the potential demise of the constitutional republic. And that, that's not to sort of engender any anxiety on the part of any listeners, but what it is is an encouragement that people go out and vote their values, that they pay attention, that they be informed consumers of information, and they find what the true answers are behind what we're seeing in terms of the hysteria. We are, we are intelligent, thoughtful consumers of what we're being fed. The average American cares most about what affects them and 
we've seen in education significantly. It turned the entire political tide in the, in the Commonwealth of Virginia, which I don't think anyone thought was possible. But that administration was sort of a petri dish for what I think is going to happen in November with the presidential administration and the midterm elections. From your lips to God's ears. I'm looking at the clock. We're down inside our last five minutes. Uh, Sarah, people can find you at Heritage Foundation. Just They can just put your name in the search bar, Sarah Parshall Perry. There's a link on the show page, which Tom is listening. He knows I put up there every single week for him and just for him because <laughs> we love him so much. There's so much more to talk about. We can't do it in 30 minutes with you. I mean, I wanted to talk about Coach uh, Kennedy, but uh, our assault on religious freedom. But we're running out of time. I can't believe how this this whole afternoon has gone so fast. Well, there's so much to talk about. There always is. We're anticipating, we think, a good outcome in the Kennedy case. Of course, it's always dangerous to make a prediction, but based on oral arguments, these justices realize at bottom it is truly a free exercise case. And coaches, teachers, and students don't surrender their First Amendment rights at the schoolhouse gates, so we're looking forward to a good outcome in that case. Well, Sarah, thank you for joining us, and you know you're always welcome back anytime. Thanks so much for having me. All right. Check out uh, Sarah over at Heritage Foundation. And thank you, Tom, for sending over excellent people every week. So that's all we got for today. I want to wish all the families out there to enjoy their Mother's Day. Uh, Remember to take care of mom, be it your wife, your daughter, your mom, your aunt, your uncle. Just remember our moms and our families because without them, we wouldn't be here. So until then, Curtis, I say good night and God bless. And I leave you all with the song by my friend, Gary Piccarella, Save America. I'm free for this land I love. America, America, the home of the free. America, they've no respect for her, or what matters most to That's why I stand for the flag, and I kneel at the cross. Mom, for the friends I have loved and lost, and ask Love and lost, and I still.